WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 373. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host Captain Jeff broadcasting live from Studio 3C at the Renaissance Hotel in Cleveland. Today's show is recorded on the 1st of May, 2019. A commercial pilot falls ill in mid-flight and declares himself incapacitated. An Air Asia freighter runs out of fuel and makes an emergency landing. And for the first time, a drone delivers a donor kidney for human transplant. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plane Tales, aviation infestation. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 373 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news and answer your feedback. And here to help me with that is, from her lakeside studio in South Carolina, doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. It is great to see you this afternoon. Looking forward to a wonderful show. I am as well. And also joining us today from across the pond in his studio in the English countryside, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Good evening, Jeff, and hi there, Steph. Uh, uh, am I reaching America today? Uh, you are. We hear you. Oh, great. Lovely. I, I think you're looking. I hear something. Just a mosquito whine. That's sounds, all you can hear. Sounds like one of those old-time movies or something. I don't know. Uh, uh, it's the old 78 records. <laughs> hey, you know what? We also have our special guest host music. Let's all sing it, sing it together. A former active duty U.S. Air Force MC-12 slash C-17 driver and currently in the Air National Guard flying the C-17 and also a first officer at a major legacy air carrier. His name, Cody Holland. And now, this is where you pick up the microphone and talk into it. Hello. <laughs> it's good. Hi, Cody. Hey, thanks for having me. I don't have anything to contribute, but I'm glad to be here. <laughs> I oh, told him we don't have anything to contribute either. No. We, and we managed to talk for three hours each week anyway. <laughs> we make so. it all yeah. up. And he's seen the show, um, so he, he understands that it's all a bunch of BS. <laughs> anyway, great that uh, he... Uh, Decided I didn't have to talk him into it too much. I, I promised him some things that we can't really talk about. But uh, he, he told me has, if I wanted to go home tomorrow, I had to be here. So yes, I, I threatened him in, in several different ways. So uh, I'm glad that you're here to be part of the show. And uh, yeah, so uh, I, as I mentioned in the in, in the 
uh, introduction of you. Um, you are a former USAF pilot, and uh, we were talking about some of the things that you did in your career. Pretty interesting stuff. And uh, also a former, well, I would, I would like to say a Mac uh, heavy driver, but they call it something different now, AMC. Or, AMC. I think they just change it every couple of years just to keep the Russians to, guessing. They just uh, swap in the letters around? They do. Yeah, oh, they, yeah. One day they're going to run out. But. <laughs> Isn't AMC a car manufacturer? It's also a bowling alley. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and, and a theater movie, company. Movie, yeah. yeah, movie theater right. uh, company. Okay, so they must be sponsoring the United States military nowadays. Is that right? Yeah, we got to get the money from some somewhere. Yeah, yeah. makes sense. So uh, anyway, a, a, a nice uh, Air Force career and currently serving our country via the Air National Guard in Jackson, Mississippi. So, and transitioning, you say, to a non-flying job? Looking forward to that. Don't know the details quite yet. It hasn't worked out, but um, looking for some. Look, Cody, Cody, sir. you've used a microphone before? No. No. <laughs> Rookies. Yeah. There you go. I, I, unfortunately, I don't have a um, another microphone stand. That would have been handy. I didn't know I was going to have anybody on the show with me today. So he, He's used to wearing one on his head. That's the problem. I'm just uh, going to strap this to my ear, see if that works. No. <laughs> That'll work. Okay. That, works. that sounds great now. Thank you. It's going to make my editing a lot easier. Appreciate it. Okay. So let's uh, go ahead and start with uh, catching up uh, since the last show, and we it hasn't been that long. I've got you muted now, so you can put it down if you'd like. You, know, you don't have to hold it. Um, oh, I was wrong. I don't have you muted. Now I do. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I have, there are too many channels. This is mixer. the first time we've ever done this show. So Shut up. Uh, Jeff's news, using some new software as usual. So I told, no, I told, I told you that they really respect me a lot. We do. Yeah. Utmost. We wouldn't Utmost. want to do that job, I can assure you. <laughs> okay. So uh, why don't we, when was it we recorded last? Thursday? And today's Tuesday. So not, not that long ago. And uh, so did you get... Uh, to do anything interesting over the weekend stuff? Uh, I was up in Asheville for like a day and a half, and we attended some uh, a concert, um, some uh, hip-hop artists out of the Atlanta area uh, were in town, but a bunch of friends went, and it was a big outdoor um, event at a local place in Asheville, so that was a lot of fun. Um, and what else did I do? Not a whole lot. Any flying or anything? Did not do any flying this weekend. I was on call this past weekend. I was a little uh, hesitant to. No, no jumping out of, of airplanes soul, or soul marathons service. or. No, no, um, um, no. It was extreme kind of boring. Rock climbing. No, no, it was kind of a boring weekend. Um, mm. But nice weather. Um, drove to and from Asheville with, uh, you know, half the top on the Jeep, which will make Captain Nick very happy to know that I did use. Some of what, the, the left half or the right half. <laughs> the back half. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and um yeah now it's uh you know it's basically summer outside so that's good and it I'm, isn't up uh, here in cleveland no oh it's like no my it, watch says it's 85 outside right now but it felt like 90 at least on the I, drive went, home. I went out to get some beer uh for a refreshment for the show since i'm hosting cody um and uh it's it's darn cold out there it's like 46 degrees or something that's right he's a c17 pilot he won't drink yeah. Well, he hasn't actually had anything to drink yet, so I'm actually, I'm uh, suspicious. I'm, I'm wondering if he's really, or maybe this is just today's Air Force. You know, could be. Anyway, 
Well, and I am alone with the dogs today, and I hear them barking already. So if I disappear suddenly, it's to make sure they're not uh, okay. attacking the neighbors or the deer in the backyard or anything. Uh, sure, you know, unruly. Whatever you have to do, Steph. Whatever you have to do. Uh, Dana is not with us today. He's on a trip, and he is presently flying somewhere. He's flying a later in the day kind of uh, trip that he likes. And uh, Nick, how about yourself? Anything interesting uh, since the last episode? Well, uh, I've finally given up uh, trying to get my last trip in. So I formally told the world that uh, uh, I am not going to fly again. Uh, so that's about the only news, really. Uh, it was pretty much uh, a done deal. I, I, we were all pretty certain it wasn't going to happen. But I formally let the company know that uh, I can't... Uh, I can't fit in another trip and get you know before I get my medical back. So that's done and dusted. In fact, they gave me a ring today to commiserate and uh, say how sorry they were that I wasn't going to get my last trip and uh, say that uh, they will send me a letter with various things I have to do before I uh, eventually um, you know quit. I've got to hand back various bits and bobs. I think we'll be sending one of those letters to you as well. So just right. yeah, we, that we just email. got a list of stuff of demands, actually. <laughs> a list of demands. <laughs> All the a lot of other those items that we've issued to you, we want them back now. Yeah, well, it's a good job. There's a very large ocean separating us. Is all I can <laughs> say. You think it's uh, a large ocean? Yeah, but what I I would like to say is that I've had an, an enormous number of our listeners, uh, friends, and family who have commiserated with me over uh, social media, and uh, for all that um, and very genuine uh, um, comments, uh, or at least most of them, uh, some from uh, Jeff and and uh, people like that and Dana, well, they were they were pretty rude, but. Uh, but most of the nice and no one people, surprised. Yeah. <laughs> most of the nice people uh, have sent sent nice oh. comments, just saying, you know, what, what a shame you can't finish your career in a blaze of glory. But uh, there you go. Knowing me, it would have been uh, just the most awful landing I'd ever done on my last landing. I would have burst all the tires and careered <laughs> to a halt of the runway. So perhaps it's a good job that I'm not doing a final trip. So. There you go. That's it. So uh, we, I, I'll get paid for one more month, even though I'm going to sit around and do nothing. Oh, nice. So there you go. And what do we call that in the Air Force? Terminal leave? Yeah, you kind of save up your leave and you still get paid, but you don't really, you're kind of finished. I tried to yeah. start terminal leave a couple of weeks after I started, but they didn't go for it. So. Oh. Um, oh, well. Ah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, um, I... It was a busy weekend for me because I mentioned that uh, Linda was out of town and I was basically there to take care of the animals in the house and all that kind of stuff and and try to edit uh, the last episode, which I finally got published yesterday. Yay. And uh, got to watch the Formula One race on Sunday morning. That was uh, one of my highlights. And uh, left on the trip uh, yesterday morning and um, went up to Chicago. Crappy weather, thunderstorms, that kind of thing. And then uh, uh, that was with um, my uh, the good co-pilot that I was flying with on the on this trip. And he had to leave me after uh, we got back to Atlanta. I think I scared him actually. And then they called up Cody to uh, come in and uh, do the rest hold, of the trip. Hold your hand. <laughs> yeah. And then we went to Kansas City. It wasn't yeah, actually it was a good flight. Uh, but then this morning, uh, and all night long, I guess. Uh, and then this morning they uh, they had a lot of severe thunderstorm and stuff uh, activity. But we got out of there, and then uh, that's it. And we headed up here to Cleveland. 
Uh, but yesterday, while I was in Kansas City, we had a meetup that was organized by Tom Seagraves. You'll remember that we talked about it a couple of times uh, on previous episodes. And uh, I took along my recorder and recorded this audio. Red light is on. Hey, we're at Q39 in Kansas City, the Midtown location, at a wonderful meetup that has been organized by Tom Seagraves from Columbia, Missouri. And uh, he drove over from Columbia, well, actually, you drove in from Ozark, Lake of the Ozarks Ozarks today, uh, to Kansas City, and uh, picked me up from the hotel and took me over here to Q39. Uh, where we've met up with some other APG community members. And uh, you want to start off, Tom? Sure. Okay, here we go. Well, as always, it's good to see you, Captain Jeff. Um, I'm glad we were able to get together for a few minutes here today. The barbecue was good. I hope you enjoyed the barbecue. We didn't haven't really talked about the barbecue. Um, I don't know if I want to publicly say say this about Q39, but it might be... Now my favorite barbecue in Kansas City. I've been here a couple times. Um, that could be kind of sacrilegious for me to say that, but uh, maybe, maybe. But it's always fun to get together and meet some new uh, APGers, and we've done that today. And uh, we just appreciate your time, and we love the community, and it's just fun to sit down and talk aviation for a couple hours. So welcome back to Kansas City. Hopefully we'll see you again sometime soon. Thank you very much, Tom, and uh, you can count on it. Uh, I always enjoy our meetups in Kansas City, and it seems like you're always here for these meetups. And I agree. Uh, the This is the best, I think, personally speaking, the best barbecue that I've had in Kansas City. I think it's a winner. All right, we have Keith. Hi, APG community. Um, we had a wonderful time here. Had a few brews, some good barbecue. Um, really appreciate Captain Jeff coming by and regaling us with a bunch more uh, aircraft stories and uh, information for us. We really appreciate it and had a great time. I'm going to pass the mic back. All right. And it was uh, Keith. What was your last name again? Waymont. Okay. And uh, let's see. We have another gentleman here that, you know, I am so popular that he drove, he drove all the way from Charlotte, North Carolina to Kansas City just exclusively, right? No, wait a minute. That's not right. He, he happened to be here in the uh, Kansas City slash St. Louis, Missouri area and uh, heard about this meetup and decided to join us. So here, I'm going to hand the microphone to him. Yeah, Captain Jeff, it was worth the drive from uh, Charlotte to uh, meet up with you here. And uh, we raced in this afternoon to make sure we could get here in time and appreciate it. And really enjoyed hearing the stories and talking to you. And it's been fun. And I'm Carrie Kenner. My wife is Linda Kenner. She stepped away for a moment, but she's been here too. So we appreciated the uh, evening. Well, Carrie is uh, especially appropriately dressed under his regular nice shirt. He has a uh, uh, an APG Acme Airlines uh, blue T-shirt. So uh, that's cool. I'll put a picture of that in the show notes. Um, and then Linda conveniently had to leave when, when she saw me take out, whip out my uh, microphone. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, so uh, Linda, if you're listening, which I doubt, uh, you know, sorry, we missed your dulcet tones. But uh, anyway, another great meetup here in Kansas City. Uh, great always to uh, share stories about our flying experiences. And, uh, you know, if you want to find out more about the various meetups we're having uh, from the crew all around the world, head over to the APG com- uh, community calendar. Uh, it's airlinepilotguy.com slash calendar. And also join our Slack team. And that's it from Q39 in Kansas City. Back to you, Jeff. Oh, wait. Oh, look, Linda's back. Actually, we get to hear from... Linda, you want to say anything? You want to say anything? Whatever you want. Okay, hang on. Linda's back. Just had a wonderful evening. This is Linda Kenner talking to the airline pilot guy who I never have really heard before, but I've heard snippets, and I'm aware of his existence. (laughs) I had a wonderful dinner. Thank you. Okay, now I realize it was a very big mistake to give the microphone to Linda. Doesn't even know what what, what we're doing here. <laughs> Just kidding. No, it was great. She is a licensed pilot, as is Carrie, and uh, heard some great stories from them about their Cessna 172 and Mooney 201. So, yeah, a bunch of airplane geeks here. We're having a great time. Okay, now, really, back to you, Jeff. I love that. You nearly got fooled the first time. You definitely got fooled the second time. <laughs> That's my cue. Yes, it is. You have to turn your microphone on first, though. It's just yeah. too many. It's just too complicated for me to do this anymore. I can't do it. Time to retire. <laughs> oh, wait. Well, it's much more complicated than a mad dog, so I can understand why you're struggling. <laughs> see, see the love I get here. No respect. I know. No respect. <laughs> now, we had a great time, and... Uh, yeah, thanks for everybody coming out, especially, uh, oh, by the way, uh, Steph, the uh, couple from Charlotte, I gave them all your information, told them that you would be happy to take them up flying, and oh, you would pay okay. for everything. And Yeah, perfect. No, Thank I'm just you. kidding. I didn't do any of that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, so kind of kind of neighbors up over there in uh, Charlotte. Yeah. Well, hey, speaking of, just real quick, I'm going to jump in because yeah. speaking of Charlotte, if they're back in town, which I don't know if they are or not, I think there's going to be a Charlotte meetup next, oh, I took my calendar down, uh, whatever day the 8th is, which I believe is Wednesday. Oh, and it's probably in the community calendar, right? It's not yet because I <laughs> need to get my act together and uh, pick a place and uh, uh, confirm the time, but probably the, around uh, 7.30 in the evening due to my schedule. Um in the Noda area in Charlotte on Wednesday, May 8th, if you're listening to this now. And I'll put it in the calendar, hopefully oh. later this evening. Yep, the screen. 8th is indeed a Wednesday. At least it is in the UK. I don't know about America. You know, uh, uh, on this particular occasion, it matches up. Oh, wow. Must be the one time in the year. Hold on. <laughs> like, is there any way you could do it in Louisville, Kentucky? No. Uh, no. No. Okay. That's where I'll be. So I was okay. hoping that. Well, maybe... I mean, you should be here, but. Well, I should well, be. That's why, that's why she picked Charlotte. Ah, now I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, that uh, we'll put that information in Slack and uh, on the APG community calendar, and uh, it'll be a lot of fun. And and uh, actually, Carrie and Linda mentioned last night that uh, they're looking forward to having some sort of a APG meetup in uh, Charlotte area. Yes, so, so there is your first opportunity, and there will be more. If they're listening, so. I hope that they'll uh, be able to attend. 
All right. Do you think Armando will be uh, there? Uh, perhaps. That'd be kind of fun. Perhaps. Armando. I have not actually talked Megan. to him about it yet. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very good. All right. Um, let's see. I guess that's about it. I'm looking. Oh, I need to talk about something. I made it. I know it's kind of hard to believe, but I made an error on a previous episode. What? what? Just one. No. Yeah. Just, oh, just one this time? Just one mistake. <laughs> Everything else I said was perfect. Mm-hmm. But uh, I talked about the um, the Dragonfly, the uh, T-37 uh, light attack variant, and I called it a, an F-37. Actually, is it an A-37? <laughs> it's an A-37. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, after the show, I went, did I say F-37? You idiot. But... Uh, Anyway, I, I'm going to include a link in the show notes re, uh, from Wikipedia regarding all the cool information about the A37 Dragonfly. Um, so, w- what is the F37? I'm just curious. Well, it's the airplane that's going to come out in a couple of years, probably. <laughs> um, very much like the F35, only two better. Ah, I don't know what that there means. There you go. Yeah. That'll be twice as good. Yes. Well, I've got a meetup tomorrow, actually, as it turns out. Oh. This is this is a very small meetup. It's just one of our listeners uh, called David Powell, who happens to be uh, doing some work uh, in the local area. And uh, we're getting together at my local pub, which is called The Temple, and it's in Liss, uh, in Liss Forest, to be precise. Oh, nice. Like, so right I'll there. be there at around 4, 4.30 uh, with David having a beer. Uh, I don't know how long we'll be there, but if anyone happens to be passing, any of our British listeners, is then that the, uh, please feel free to join us. Is that the pub that I went to that's like literally within walking distance of your house? Yep, it's like yes. 10 minutes away. Oh, it's a yeah. nice place, that new place, right? Well, it's not new. Yeah, anymore, yeah, it was re- recently refurbished. Very nice yeah. indeed. Very nice. Well, I wish I could be there for that as well. Oh, well. Oh, well. You'd have to learn to fly an airplane, then you could come across. A real airplane, right? <laughs> I might just do that, actually. A proper airplane. Watch yes. out. You know, don't make threats like that, Nick. Right. He'll, he'll make good on them. <laughs> yeah. Just to spite you, actually. Mm-hmm. Ah, damn. You yeah. think you've retired and you're safe from having to visit with Jeff ever again. <laughs> no such yeah. luck. Yeah. wrong. Uh, He's going to be there every other week. I might have to move. Five years until he retires. <laughs> Gosh, they're even, they're more rude than they normally are here on today's show. Oh, uh, yeah. Jeff is old enough to be your dad, Liz. Mm. Thank you, Nev. <laughs> Time for the Coffee Fund. The Jeff Smith is going to sing to us. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea, and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Why is Jeff Smith and Jeff Nielsen singing the Java Jive? Well, it's because this is the part of the show where we talk about the coffee fund, which is your way to support the show financially. And since the last episode, we have a few who have joined the cadre uh, using the caf- the classic fund, the Coffee Fund, Cadre, Classic Fund, whatever. Uh, we have Duran Da Silva. He made a nice contribution. Thank you very much, Duran. Along with recurring donations from David Lieb, Vignir G. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, so I just put G. Uh, Jason Kuntz and Alistair Kerr. And the other way to do it, 
uh, I think it's preferable, actually, is uh, via Patreon. You can become a patron of the show. And uh, information about that we'll give you here in a moment. But since the last episode, we have a new producer, Lars Petter Eliason, and a new executive producer, Amir Naruzi. And uh, thank you guys for joining the Coffee Fun Cadre. If you want to learn how to do it yourself, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. Stand by for news. Let's start with the first item in our news folder. Of course, all uh, produced by Liz Piper, our producer in mm-hmm. Toronto. Yay. Um, what? You have hiccups again? Stuff? <laughs> no, that was a uh, abbreviated woohoo. Okay. This is just upsetting to me to read, but I'm going to try. Pilot. Falls ill mid-flight. He becomes unable to fly the plane to Hong Kong. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I should have something there that I can play. I, I know I do somewhere, but oh well. Dun, dun, dun. I'll fix it in post. Thanks. Yeah, so uh, the thing that's amazing about it, I think it was the captain that became ill and I don't know, somehow the plane did not crash because, oh yeah, <laughs> there's, there's a, a first officer and probably on Cathay Pacific flight from Perth International Airport to Hong Kong, probably at least one other crew member, maybe two, that uh, are perfectly capable of flying the airplane. Actually, nah, it's not, it's the not pilot that far, was Jeff. ill. Uh, it's not that, I, I oh, it's not that far? Okay, nah. so do you think it was just uh, the two of them? It could well have been. Oh, well, then it is a miracle. I don't know how they didn't crash. <laughs> um, so, you know, we've talked about this so many times on the show. It's like, hello. Um, you know, the you know the first officer is as qualified and actually probably can fly the airplane better than most captains can. Wouldn't you agree, Nick? Of course, with the exception of Nick and I. Um, oh, yeah, of course, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I relied so much on my first officers that I used to go back and sit at the bar with the uh, upper-class passengers. So. He's got a bar in his airplane. Yeah, I know. It's just yeah. not fair. The it's world not, is not fair. Not fair at all. <laughs> but, uh, of course, you know, j- we, we go through the same training and the same testing and the same um, recertification and re- recurrent training and check. I mean, they have the same license, essentially? Same license, yes. Oh. Um, and in fact, it used to be where uh, first officers at ACME didn't have didn't have to have an airline airline transport pilot license uh, for that position. But now we have uh, ATPs required for any position, uh, any flying position at ACME. And is, is yours a, an SIC um, or is it a PIC? I don't know. There there's some kind of difference between the 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 actual ratings themselves as far as ACME is concerned, but. Basically, what I'm trying to say is, 
The only difference is that um, I have all the responsibility and uh, the Cody is there just to make me look good. And, uh, and I get more money than he does basically. So that's the difference between a captain. And a seems, first seems fair. <laughs> it seems very fair to me now that I'm a captain <laughs> did not seem fair at all when I was a first officer, but uh, that's just the way it works in this industry. So Nick, just, you know, I know that you're uh, you don't get paid an hourly rate. You get paid a, a salary is, is the uh, first officer's salaries like, uh, like a percentage of what a captain would make like a two thirds of, your salary or it's not calculated as that Jeff, but, uh, it, the way it works is that, uh, you know, the first officer gets, uh, a basic starting wage and then it has increments for about 10 years, if not even a few years longer. And actually the step from a, a, a senior first officer who's had the maximum number of increments to a junior captain is not that great. So, you know, there are a lot of first officers who are, uh, you know, say, well, I don't know if it's really worth it, you know, particularly the scene, the very, well, the, the ones who are perhaps come into the industry uh, late in life or uh, from another airline and they're looking at it saying, well, I've got all the seniority I like, I'm getting paid pretty well um, and I'm getting great bidding rights. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's really worth me going through all the hassle of a, why would I want all the responsibility? Exactly. So <laughs> I, I, I've spoken to a couple who felt like that. I mean, obviously, most people want to then um, get onto that new ladder because when you get to be a captain, it doesn't you don't just sit there. Uh, you, you then start a new ladder and you progress with an annual increment. So it obviously, uh, you know, it's the start of a a new progression. So. At Acme, but, we have uh, the same kind of thing where, you know, some guys just decide that they may, their, their wives may or their spouses or partners may have like really, really good jobs making a lot of money and they, they don't really see the need to upgrade to captain. They have great seniority. They're flying great trips. They don't have any responsibility and uh, they just stay, you know, basically career first officers. Yeah, very much so. I, I got a number of first officers I've flown with who run businesses. They mm-hmm. uh, they might write software. They might have a um, be simulator instructors. Uh, I know one guy who helps run a flying school, and they they do this because they, uh, they you know they they love it, and they're saying, well, actually, I don't want to be a, a captain. I, in fact, I want to go part time because uh, this this flying with this outfit is getting in the way of my other job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, we have a bunch of people like that at, at our company. Um, and then there are people like Cody that um, he's never going to be, he's never going to check out as a captain. It has nothing to do with any of the stuff we just talked about. It's just. It's not captain material. Just not captain material. <laughs> well, just yeah, well he, I mean, not everyone's, I mean, I don't know you all, Cody, but no, it's okay. He, not everyone's. Obviously, he's up. an aircraft commander in the U.S. Yes. Air Force flying heavy metal, bigger airplanes than we're, what we're flying right now. So, uh, yeah. Um, no doubt he'll be in. Is that why he has such big muscles? I think so. I didn't notice. Oh, uh, okay. That must be curious. the camera. Oh. It's the camera angle. <laughs> the camera angle. Yeah. Hey, Cody, you work out? <laughs> Just ignore him. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he embarrasses himself. <laughs> I can't even right now. I'm, I'm not sure where you're going with that, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I got it. Yeah, and on like, that note. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's probably, that's one I should push, but I'm not going to. Good. Thank you. Wow. (laughs) All right. Um, That's the one right below the one that I was thinking about pushing. Okay. Well, if only we knew what was above the one you just pushed, we'd have some (laughs) idea of what you were about to do. Well, exactly. 
I think Steph knows. Um, yeah, I think I do. Anywho. <laughs> it's okay. So should I really, I don't even know how I should read this, this article. Oh, I already closed that article. And okay. Moved on to the it's just one. like, you know, just another. Uh, yeah. I have to give the listeners some idea of why we're so incensed. Jeff. <sighs> well, because. I mean, they declared a pan pan after all. So, you know. Well, let, let me read the first like, sentence. Okay. The first paragraph. Panic erupted on a flight from Australia when the pilot abruptly became incapacitated and passengers were called on to assist. Now, I guess I could kind of panic a little bit because you're concerned about the person's health. But uh, they kind of make it sound like the, the panic was because, you know, the, the one person on this airplane that can fly the airplane safely and get everybody on the ground is the person that is incapacitated. Well, as we just mentioned, that's not really the case. Uh, looks like they were flying from Perth International Airport to Hong Kong, carrying 270 passengers, 13 crew members at the time. The pilot announced to his crew that he felt unwell with over an hour left in the flight, and the co-pilot was forced to take command. A pan-pan call was made, as Steph mentioned. Anyway, um, I don't know. It doesn't really say here in the uh, article that I don't, I don't recall it says anything about if he is okay or whatever, but it says this is the uh, – yes, Steph? No. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. No, I was just clicking. And okay. apparently that was loud. This is the second incident this year involving a pilot on board a Cathay Pacific flight becoming incapacitated due to, quote, physical discomfort. <laughs> I've had physical <laughs> discomfort, <laughs> but I haven't declared a pan pan. Um, but I've had to I, use I the restroom. The <laughs> oh, poor chap. I love the bit where they say at an altitude of 11,580 meters, a recognized medical professional was on board the aircraft. I'm trying to work out what the correlation between the altitude and the fact that there was a medical professional on board. Well, you know, if they'd been lower, would they not have one on board? What, that what type of aircraft was this? Did it say? Yeah, it's just triple seven. Triple seven. There was probably more than one medical professional on board. <laughs> I'm just going to, if it was a full flight, I'm just going to guess. Yeah. Just out of... Uh, you know, sure probability. Yeah. But they didn't know until 11,580 meters that they had a recognized medical professional on board. Yeah. That's Good probably what yes, they asked. Sure. Yeah. Because I'm sure this is how it went down. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, sorry to bother you. Is there a anyone who is a medical professional on board who can provide some assistance for us? And I'm sure they did not mention who it was for because does it really matter? No, Steph, that's not exactly how it happened. It was nope. all of a sudden, help, panic. Hey, now we have the pilot, the pilot that can fly the airplane is having some kind of He's physical discomfort. <laughs> <laughs> do we have any medical professionals on board? Something like that. Like we need to do an, we need to do a reenactment, uh, a dram dramatic reenactment. Well, I want to hear you declare yourself incapacitated. How do you do that? <laughs> I, I declare myself incapacitated. Exactly. It's like you declare an emergency. <laughs> I declare bankruptcy. It's I same, declare right? bankruptcy. Yeah, Michael Scott. Yeah. I declare <laughs> bankruptcy. <laughs> I declare bankruptcy. Michael, you, you you can't just declare bankruptcy. Anyway, we're talking about the office. The office. Uh, great show. Okay. Yeah, that's enough of this. I'm I'm tired of talking about that. Oh, but I will say one thing. Um, that this is just a good example of why we always say here on this show uh, that it's important that we have at least two 
pilots on board an airplane just in case one of them becomes incapacitated. Because if it was a single pilot airplane and he became incapacitated, uh, then, you know, I guess they would have to try to find somebody in the back to fly the airplane. Suffer through that physical discomfort. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And then all those Microsoft flight simmers would be putting up their hands going, me, 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 I can, yeah, do, I can it. do it. <laughs> I know all about the 777. <laughs> there you go. In, in actuality, they probably know more about the 777 than probably. the 777 they pilots do. A fantastic, <laughs> they probably do a fantastic job yeah. flying it, actually. Yeah. All right, that's enough. Let's all move right. on. Um, uh-oh, Dana is in the news. I see this. Yeah. I'm intrigued. Dana apparently was flying an MD-83 at Port Harcourt. Oh, wait a minute. No, that's the name of the airline. <laughs> oh, I've flown. Dana in. has an airline? Yeah. Wow. Wow. And, and I've flown wow. into Port Harcourt. Wow. <laughs> Um, where is that? It's, uh, to the east of, uh, Lagos in Nigeria. It's, oh. in a, it's in a mosquito and malaria infested swamp. <laughs> One of your favorites. Yeah. Well, and, uh, yeah, it, we were only allowed to land there during the day because they have so many power cuts and no backup power. Mm. Mm. So Sounds lovely. an MD 83, yes, very lovely MD 83 registration, five November, Sierra Romeo, India, Performing flight 363 from Abuja or Abuja to Port Harcourt in Nigeria with 44 passengers and five crew, landed on Port Harcourt's runway 21 in poor weather conditions at about 1910 local time. They overran the end of the runway, went through the localizer antenna, and came to a stop on soft ground about 298 meters or 980 feet past the end of the runway. The aircraft was evacuated. No injuries are being reported. The aircraft sustained substantial damage, however. And uh, they said that was uh, heavy rain accompanied by strong winds and storm. And I'm pretty sure that this runway was probably not a grooved runway. I mean, are any of them, Nick, in Nigeria? They're probably not specially prepared with I, grooving. I've never got close enough to really look, quite yeah. honestly. No, because, you know, we're quite high, yeah. you know. Well, you, like, would you, you have some information available to you to know whether? Yeah, it's not. It's not uh, in the briefing information no. anywhere. No airport information. Yeah, I don't want to put runway it on the surface spot. type. I doubt no. that. Yeah, you know, a lot of the countries that we fly to, and, and like in the Caribbean and other, you know, places around the world that don't have the best facilities, um, it's it's very normal that they don't have porous friction overlays or grooved runways. By the way, grooved runways. We should probably talk about grooved runways or have somebody that has some knowledge of it send us some audio feedback regarding that. So just keep that in mind. Uh, that would be a, a great thing. It would be. Who do, we, who do we know? I don't know. But hopefully somebody out there will. A runway maker amongst our listenership? Well, we do have somebody that um, is respected by many, unlike me. Um, and, and better uh, looking? And much better looking. <laughs> Who will be talking about grooved runways later in what the show? Would a, what would a colonel know about grooved runways? I don't know, but we're going to find out. All right. All right. So uh, basically, not much to the story other than they overshot the runway. And I don't know if they're going to, maybe they'll be able to use the airplane again. So you might be able to call that a good landing. Um, and it's not the first time that this airline, Dana, and uh, that sounds appropriate. Um, Ended up running off the runway. I'm just kidding. Sorry, Dana, if you're listening. He never he never listens. No, he never um, listens. Yeah. Um, you can say what you like, Jeff. It was an ATR something or other um, not that long ago that uh, 
also had a runway excursion at the same airport, same airline, same airport, different air, mm-hmm. different type of airliner. Uh, but apparently, uh, anyway, uh, we'll put the information on this in the show notes. You can was read that all about it. Was the second it. half of this, or was the second half of this story the uh, AIB report? Um, looks I like think it the is. the second half is the AIB report, isn't it? Oh, yeah. This, this happened um, a while back. I remember, I think we did talk about this. So this it's must just be that the, they landed so deep. I'm going, uh, what? Because the, they 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 say they reckon they landed a thousand feet or fifteen hundred feet in, but the AIB said they landed. Uh, I'm I'm flicked through a couple of times, five thousand feet in or something. What? Wow! Oh, it touched down seven thousand nine hundred and seventy-two feet past <laughs> oh, the runway threshold. <laughs> <laughs> With a runway <laughs> length of nine thousand eight hundred and forty yeah. feet. Yeah, and I thought I, I I'm going to go. So this today. had. No- <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Yeah, so I don't think it had a lot to do whether whether the runway was grooved or not. I think this looks yeah. fine. Just I, just continue. I think if that's, the runway had been made of of sand or retardant, that special <laughs> retardant material you get, I don't think they'd have stopped like a, that stuff. The runway truck ramp material. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I don't mm. know, and they had a ten knot tailwind. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. They added 10 knots and they had a tailwind. Oh, cool. So they had yeah. a lot of energy. Well, for, for a mad dog, yeah. You guys never have much energy, do you? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So there you go. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, moving on to Asia Airways uh, Antonov AN26 near Khartoum on the 22nd of April ran out of fuel. <laughs> An Air uh, Asia Airways Antonov AN26 freighter uh, performing a positioning flight from Djibouti to Khartoum with five crew ran out of fuel about 40 nautical miles short of Khartoum Airport and was forced to land in open terrain. All I can say is it's good good thing that there was some, some flat terrain for this thing to land on. Um, so there were no injuries. The aircraft, though, sustained substantial damage. There's some pictures here. Kind of sad. Uh, kind of a high wind. It, it, it is sad, but uh, you know, the fuselage looks fairly intact. So actually, they made a, a pretty good job of a forced landing. Looks like they didn't even put the gear down, did they? No, no. Well, it's kind of sandy material that they yeah. landed on, so that might have been a reasonable choice. I don't know. Huh. Well, they actually might be able to use that airplane again. I don't know. Uh, I'd ra- well, yeah, so somebody in Africa might, but I'd rather not. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Nick at AirlinePilotGuy.com. <laughs> All right. And then finally, I can't wait to get over the news. <laughs> and then um, on to the feedback. Yeah. We're going to have a good, we have a lot of good feedback. Continue. Yes. yes. And I'm trying to find, where is, do you see something there that says drone? Here we go. Drone delivers kidney for a successful human transplant. Last week, GE Aviation Unit Arexos? How do you pronounce that? A-I-R-X-O-S. Exos? Errors? I don't know. Participated in the world's first drone flight that delivered a donor kidney for actual human transplant. The flight was a collaboration between transplant physicians and researchers, researchers at the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore. Aviation and engineering experts at the University of Maryland and collaborators at the Living Legacy Foundation of Maryland. Uh, on April 19th, at approximately 12.30 a.m., a human donor kidney was loaded 
onto the University of Medical, uh, Maryland Medical Center drone. The flight, led by the University of Maryland UAS test site at St. Mary's County, commenced at 1 a.m. The vehicle traveled 2.6 miles and flew for approximately 10 minutes. The kidney was successfully delivered to UMMC for a 5 a.m. transplant surgery. The drone's flight was monitored by Arexos, however you pronounce that, air mobility platform that enables unmanned traffic management applications, operations, and services. Air mobility manages the volume, density, and variety of unmanned traffic data and coordinates and integrates it with a secure FAA-compliant gated cloud environment. Sounds like an IT guy wrote this. It's like really complicated. Um, How do you gate clouds? Um, I don't know. That's Carefully. I'm just, I'm just curious. That I think it's like, that, that's what heaven looks like. A bunch of clouds and then little yeah. gates. <laughs> oh, well, actually, there's one big gate, I Saint thought. Peter. Oh, yeah, true. <laughs> there, yeah. there you go. That's a gated cloud right there. There you go. Um, so, yeah, that's good. Um, and we've talked about on the show before. Yeah, there are some I'm, good uses for this. But, you know, I know stuff. I'm a little confused, though, because <laughs> so especially for kidney transplants, a lot of times those come from living donors. So you can have them basically in show up to the hospital operating rooms. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they don't always. So I guess maybe in instances where you would have this from a, a you know, non-living donor. Do you think that maybe they picked a kidney to do this on a drone just in case the drone like fell out of the sky and they go, oh, that's just it a sounds kidney. Like this, yeah. I mean, this all sounds like it had more to do with the drone testing than the actual kidney yeah. donation. So anyway. Okay. Well, there you go. There's a good use for a drone. And uh, I must admit, if I was lying on a operating theater, say waiting for a new heart, I personally would rather they didn't deliver it by drone. I, you know, any other means of transit, a donkey, that would be fine. <laughs> I mean, like courier, you know, someone yeah. to to yep. carry it I, the entire I'm way. Just, yeah, a person. Yeah, I, I've just seen too many drones go haywire. But there you go. There you go. <laughs> We're trying to think of really positive things to say about this. Yeah. And that's about all we can it's muster. The future. <laughs> the future. Well, that's positive. Okay. Well, that's good. Let's move on to the best, well, almost the best part of the show. Your feedback. Captain. Incoming message. I feel like the show is going really well. I think it is. It's going. I'm enjoying myself immensely. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All right, we got Cody here. Yeah, Janice. that's the highlight. You. Um, so, <laughs> hey, let's yes. start with this piece of feedback from somebody that uh, we all know and is near and dear to our hearts. This is Miami Hick. I had some feedback about the feedback extra show. Y'all was talking about flying the plane down there to Mexico and that uh, Mexican city you couldn't pronounce. And it reminded me of my own Mexico story. I got in a real bad accident down there a couple years back. And I had to get a metal plate put in my head. And while I was down there recovering, a real nice Mexican doctor come out and told me to be careful. The plate's hot. And uh, the lady at the end, who was wondering why they didn't say the name of the plane, whether it was a Boeing or whatnot, and... And I know the reason they didn't say it, because everybody knows it's not proper to use such foul language in front of a lady. So that's the reason they didn't say that. 
and uh, you were also talking about the hours of service and keeping track of it and whatnot. And Jeff said they had a, a system of keeping track of his hours in the Mad Dog. And uh, last time I was in a Mad Dog cockpit, I, I saw what it was. It was a sand hourglass. Miami Hick, over and out. Uh-huh. I, thought, I thought Miami <laughs> Hick flew <laughs> Didn't well, he, he was probably on the, the jump seat. I think he's been in one. Used to, in, in days past, he used to say he flew as he flew an mm-hmm. Airbus. I'm sure he did. That was, hmm. you know, it was his job. I don't. I don't. Maybe recall. he has a new job. I mean, right. it was a while. You know, there was a little gap there. Maybe he. Uh, yeah. Under went through. Some he's jump ship to you. Okay, it could be. Anyway, I'll always, have to fill us in. Oh yes, thank you for your. Uh, I love the. Um, Careful, the plate is hot. <laughs> do, do you have Mexican food restaurant or Mexican restaurants in uh, the UK, Nick? Uh, not a lot. No. Yeah. Oh. Um, That's like what they always say when they bring your food. Yeah, they out. bring out it's the like, plate. Careful, and, plate's hot. They, they have these big, giant heat, whatever gloves, you know, that, and they you know, don't touch it. And, you know, you always want to touch it to make sure that, oh, dang, it really is hot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how they get the plate so darn hot, but they do. I think the whole thing's in the oven, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, Miami Heck, for that. Um, here's a great, and I, I love this picture. It's a, Somebody took a picture of an MD-90. Let's see. Let me read this from David Ogden. I saw this picture posted on a Houston Aviation Photography Group Facebook page. I got the photographer's permission to share it with you. I thought it was a cool picture of a mad dog departing with all the lights on in low visibility. Please enjoy. So we'll put this uh, picture in the show notes. It's very nice. Maybe I'll make it for the uh, the uh, episode um, cover art. We'll see. Yeah. Well, it is gorgeous and and a damn difficult photograph to take and to get that uh, shot because uh, you can't use uh, a very high shutter speed because otherwise uh, with that little light with that you know small amount of light the iso is going to be very high it's going to be very grainy so you've got to use a relatively low sheet uh, speed and pan really smoothly to uh, you know get no relative movement so it's, he's done a fine job with that and it looks gorgeous doesn't it yeah it does and uh, interestingly you know we've talked about the uh, LED lighting and uh, the fact that they are retrofitting a lot of our lighting on the 88 and the 90 with LED lighting. And here's an example of it in this picture. The wing landing lights on the wingtips are LED and all the other lights that are on this picture are the standard incandescent lighting. So yeah, we'll I find that that makes the Mad Dog look larger than it is in real life when it's coming in for you know, to land in the dark compared to compared to other aircraft we do those tricks to, to make it look larger mm-hmm. i think it looks like a klingon bird of prey but um <laughs> did uh did the uh, mad dog makers know that you can get a different temperature of uh, light so that you can actually get all the lights to match so they all look the same they don't all have to be different shades of white you know well, we could do like purple and green yeah, and could, blue. But I mean, I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking he got a blue <laughs> white and a tungsten, a, a yellow white. I'm sure they thought about it, Nick. Nah, we we're very concerned about it. <laughs> no, they didn't. No, it's part of the aesthetics. That's the, the that's the photographer. I'm sure, it didn't have anything to do with cost. No. Oh, they're cheap. Yeah. All right. 
Thank you, David, for sending that in. Uh, very nice. Very beautiful picture. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I'd love to know who the photographer was, actually. Um, yeah, some Facebook users group. Um, Houston. Sure. Houston, Texas. yeah. <laughs> that's all we can that's all we can say there. We don't know anything else. Um let's see. Matt writes in. Um hello all. I don't fly commercial often, but I recently saw something I haven't seen before and was wondering if you could offer some insight. I'm currently on Southwest Airlines 1366 from Boston to Austin. Things started getting a bit bumpy and I heard the trademark ding dong ding dong. One of the flight attendants walked to the phone. I figured we were coming into some turbulence and the captain was updating the attendant. After she hung up the phone, one of the pilots came out of the flight deck and went into the forward head. Then the uh, the toilet. Then the attendant slipped into the cockpit and another attendant locked the door behind her. After the first pilot finished his business, he went back into the cockpit and the other pilot came out to use the head, the bathroom, the lavatory, the toilet. And the attendant stayed on the flight deck. So what was the attendant doing up there? Hmm, we really can't say. Um, lastly, what's the scoop on all the ding-dongs? <laughs> As in the tones, not the dummies. Or the nice little treats made by Hostess. Ooh. I love those ding-dongs. Yeah, those are good. I love them. Uh, thanks for the great show and insight. All aviation pleasantries to you all. Matt Collings. Okay. So... What was going on there? We, uh, I, you know, it's probably best for Cody and I to address this because uh, Southwest Airlines, a, a U.S. airline, we have certain rules now. Well, actually, since 9-11, um, the uh, rule that you can't have somebody in the cockpit by themselves. So if it's a two-person cockpit, um, the one of the pilots has to leave the cockpit we have to have somebody else up there. And so the flight attendant usually, unless we have like, if we have a jump seat or something like that, then this isn't a problem at all. Just one of the pilots goes out and um, there's still two people up in the cockpit. But if it's just uh, the uh, captain and first officer, one of them has to leave. We have to have a flight attendant up there um, and uh, it has to do with security procedures. So, and what they're doing is just standing there and talking to the, pilot that's up in the cockpit. I mean, there's nothing really special going on there. Um, and uh, that's pretty pretty much it. Just a simple answer, I think. Um, I know, Nick, um, the, the uh, requirement now to have the cockpit always, you know, with at least two people, is that that's kind of been rescinded a little bit, hasn't it? With Depending on the airline over there in the... Well, it Europe. has in Europe, yes, yeah. for sure. Because uh, um, it was there was a big push after the German wings mm -hmm. uh, incident. Mm -hmm. But um, from a security point of view, I think the attitude that the Europeans have taken is that you can get a flight attendant, join a company, uh, and after only a few weeks, uh, and probably uh, not a great deal of, security checking excuse me i shouldn't uh, eat peanuts when i'm doing this show, should uh, i do you have a peanut allergy should we call the Are there do, you don't have 911 over there do you what? No, that's right i'm a medical professional <laughs> okay uh, recognize are you recognized did you though? A holiday uh, 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 trust me i'm a gynecologist <laughs> yeah um, uh -huh. sure you are 
So, uh, yeah, they said, well, you could get someone who's coming onto the flight deck to sit behind the pilot uh, who um, we know very little about. Mm-hmm. And the worry was that someone uh, with uh, some ne'er-do-well could join an airline specifically to get into the position where very quickly, after a few weeks training and then they'd be on the line, they could end up in this position on the flight deck and they could use that opportunity to do something bad. Uh, And actually, uh, it was probably safer to leave the well-known and trusted pilot up there on his own rather than introducing someone uh, else into the flight deck. So uh, that's the uh, reason. That was the basic reason behind that change in procedure. If you're going to leave the flight deck for any length of time, then we usually do uh, uh, ask someone to come up uh, just to uh, keep the other pilot occupied, particularly on a long night flight when uh, it's you know it's possible that you could you know uh, in a low in a circadian low you might drop off by mm-hmm. fall asleep. But uh, no, we well, do, so we that's what the uh, flight attendants doing. Like, <laughs> wake up, <laughs> wake up, desperately slapping them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish I had the. We have some good sound effects from the airplane movie where people are getting slapped. Yes. Oh, yeah, wow. you you must uh, sort of spend some time organizing your sound. <laughs> I, I should. Yeah. <laughs> One of these days, maybe. One of these so, days. Hey, sort of logical hey, order. Hey, wake up. Hey, snap out of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Oh, by the way, uh, what's the scoop on all the ding dongs? Uh, do you, how many ding dongs do you have on your airplane? <laughs> Lots <yet>? of ding dongs. <laughs> <laughs> if you're talking about the chimes, uh, and I think it really depends on um, the airline, the airliner. Yeah, it might be airline. It's it's a little bit airline specific. And I know that, that some airplanes, different airlines, some air, uh, some airplanes will make chime sounds uh, when certain things happen. I know. I think the Airbus. I've been I've jump seated on the Airbus, and when I don't I don't recall exactly what it was. It was the gear coming down or something else. You, you hear like a chime uh, come on, and uh, that's like broadcast in the cabin. Uh, do you know anything about that, Nick? Uh, what what uh, might automatically chime when you do something? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that when the aircraft was first, no, I'm not certain about this. When it when the aircraft was was brought into service the no smoking used to come on automatically with the gear yeah but nowadays we have the no smoking lights on all the time Mm -hmm. but i think that circuitry that logic is probably still in the system so if you do get a chime when the gear comes down it's probably just the system uh you know going oh i need to turn the smoking on even though it's already on uh we uh do a chime as well on the flight we can chime the cabin just by flicking on and off the you know, the seatbelt signs very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do that at 5,000 feet to give the cabin crew an indication that, uh, you know, that you've only got like five or ten minutes to finish preparing the cabin. Uh, and uh, At least well, here uh, in the U.S. on the on departure at 10,000 feet, there's almost always a chime. Yep. We do a, uh, at ACME, we do a double chime mm-hmm. going through 10,000 feet. And that's an indication for the flight attendants to do their announcement that we're above 10,000 feet and it's okay to uh, use your electronic yeah, that's devices. That's how I know to log into the internet. Yeah, that's when the internet <laughs> comes on. 
We yeah. we just turn the seatbelt signs off at ten thousand feet. I know I know on a lot of American carriers you never turn the seatbelt signs off. So. <laughs> That's just one more thing to worry about, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want the people. We don't want the passengers leaving their seats. No, 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 no. What you, if they have to pay? Right. Exactly right. Yes, yes. You, you're quite happy for them to leave their seats, but you don't want to be held responsible. Yeah. If they they'll, they'll get up anyway. It's okay. Yeah. So the the chime that that rings when we do the going through 10,000 feet is just a single chime, although we do it twice. So it turns out to be a double chime, but it's just one tone. Uh, when you hear a two tone chime, like ding dong, that's usually an indication that the cockpit wants to talk to the flight attendant. And uh, when they ring us in the mad dog, it makes a, just an awful sound. <laughs> when I first, when I first got on this airplane and I heard in the, in the simulator, I heard the chime that uh, the flight attendants use to get our attention. Or, and when we get receive certain messages on the A cars, I thought, well, that can't, oh, that is horrible. It's like taking your fingernails against a chalkboard and scraping it. That's the kind of sound it makes to me. And I think, well, that can't be right. That can't be anything close to what it sounds like in the real jet. Guess what? It does. It's worse. <laughs> it's worse. <laughs> but then after a while, I guess you get used to it. I mean, I'm, it's not. It doesn't sound so abrasively disgusting to me anymore. But it's really a. I've never heard that kind of sound in any airplane that I've flown. But the one today was so loud. Yeah. Sometimes they're like really loud, and then other times that you know they're. Sometimes they're not very loud at all, and I just miss it completely. And all of a sudden. First officer is like talking on the on the uh, intercom and I go, what, what are you doing? <laughs> and then I realized that they they rang the chime and I didn't hear it. Yeah. What'd you say? Did you say something? Yeah. Speak up. <laughs> of course, the, the chimes vary. Um, there is obviously a chime for when the the uh, passenger uh, dings the cabin crew. Yeah. Uh, there's a chime for when they use their telephones or when we use our telephones uh, interphones to call each other. Mm -hmm. There's uh, automatic chimes when there's uh, a cabin system fault. Uh, and of course, there's an even more urgent chime when there's a smoke warning in the uh, toilets, for example. Yeah, we don't have the last two you mentioned there. I don't think we have that. Yes, he's talking about maybe just the sound in the cockpit. I don't know. You said the cabin, what did you say? There was a, chi a sound that uh, is chime that comes on with a cabin something, something? Cabin system fault. Yeah, cabin system. when they get a when they get a warning that there's a fault in the cabin, uh, that will chime, uh, and it will also there's a row of lights. It'll bring on a, a particular coloured light, and if uh, someone's smoking in the toilet and the smoke warning goes off, uh -huh. and we talked about the last be, episode that uh, on the airplane that Cody and I fly and Dana, um, there's just like a almost like the kind of smoke detector that you have in your house that's that sounds off, and we don't have any indication in the cockpit. All right. Unless we, unless it's the first class lab, we might actually hear the the sound of the smoke alarm going off. But there's nothing in the systems to indicate up front in the cockpit that we have something going on like that. We rely upon the flight attendants to let us know. Fair enough. Um, but when we turn off the seatbelt light, it just makes one single chime. We turn it back on, single chime. So it, you know, again, it depends on the airline and. Steph, do you find that it's pretty similar regarding, you know, the different airlines that you fly? Yeah, across air, across airlines and aircraft type, it's fairly similar. It seems like there's slight variation. Usually, it's in the sound of the actual tone mm -hmm. uh, of the ding dong, <laughs> but 
Otherwise, it's pretty similar. It seems like they're used for all the same purposes. There's not a lot of variation. I prefer the chocolate-covered cake with the cream, white cream inside Ding Dong. That's my favorite. Actually, that ding sound is my my, uh, text message notification on my phone, too. Oh, is it? Mm, Yeah, send me a text. Okay. (laughs) Wait a minute. You have to hear it over the sound of the barking dogs in the background. Sorry. So... Would it, if we did one of our group texts, would that work? Yeah, that would work. All right, here we go. <laughs> I didn't hear it. Oh, you know why? Oh, shoot. <laughs> you turned off your <laughs> notification. It, no, it came to my watch. <laughs> oh. <laughs> hold, hold on. I'm thinking, go. Oh, yeah, I have really lost go, my... Go again. Go again. Oh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> That all doesn't right, sound at all like the thing we hear on the airplane. Go again. Ah. Uh-uh. That's one. That doesn't sound like the one in our jet. Yeah. Too fancy. No, too it's fancy. a little different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, and on that note, I, I heard that need one. to go find out what the dogs are <laughs> okay. talking about. I'll be right back. All right. Good luck. All right. Well, that is, uh, let's, did we answer all his questions? Ding dongs, tones. Yeah, basically, I think we confused Matt more than anything else. Matt, you should probably ask somebody that really knows the proper answer for these questions, not us. Really just wake up yeah. Anyway, what's he doing flying from Boston to Australia? I don't understand. No, Austin. Oh, okay. Which is kind of confusing because they sound very similar. Yeah, yeah, I would have thought so. Um, hey, I like saying that. Hey, <laughs> Nick Camacho. Oh, our C-47 pilot extraordinaire um, sent us some audio feedback, and this is basically hot off the press. I think it was today, earlier today, that he sent this, and it's kind of an update on what's going on with this big uh, Normandy D-Day thing and flying the C-47 and uh, other interesting stuff. So without further ado, let's hear from Nick. Hey, Captain Jeff and the rest of the APG crew. This is Nick from the Air Capital. Uh, I wanted to send in uh, just a bit of feedback as we get ready to embark on our big C-47 trip. Uh, There are a couple things I wanted to touch on today. Uh, The first thing is I I had planned on sending in, uh, you know, some feedbacks detailing all the maintenance we did to get ready for this trip, um, my involvement with uh, C-47s and the airplane and everything. And uh, I've just, my problem is every time I start, trying to record a feedback and talking about this airplane, I ended up, I ended up getting real long winded and have this big chunk of audio that I don't want to make Jeff and the rest of the crew sit through and everybody else. Um, so I was trying to figure out, uh, how I could get around that. And then, um, I think I kind of worked a little solution up that, uh, may or may not work out. Uh, Another thing I'm doing is I'm involved. I'm in charge of all of our social media and uh, making videos and doing stuff for our airplane. So, uh, I talked with Nev a little bit uh, and Trevor on the Slack, and uh, they both kind of got me squared away with some new audio equipment and uh, to go along with my camera. So I'm going to be doing uh, recording some interviews and doing videos and stuff along the way. Uh, and I thought, well, what what would be a better way to kind of learn how to uh, use all this stuff and get going on my computer and everything than than make a, a handful of little uh, feedback type segments. Um, that I can drop in in the Slack channel. So I think what I'm going to do is I'll, I'll start making some slightly more in-depth 
you know, maybe like 10 to 15 minute uh, little segments about uh, our airplane and our trip that I'll uh, drop in the Slack channel. So if, if you're looking for like the really um, av geeky uh, C47 stuff, uh, I'd highly recommend uh, joining Slack and then uh, joining our trip channel, which I think is D-Day uh, C47 D-Day Epic or something like that. Um, so, uh, so that'll all be there as well as, uh, information on, on, uh, stops we're making across the country and over in Europe. And, you know, obviously the meetup stuff, I'll try to put the big meetup, uh, notes, uh, in feedback for the show, as well as being in the meetups channel on Slack. Um, but, uh, as far as, uh, places we're going and, and things we're doing, um, the D-Day squadron, I'm sorry, the, the D-Day Epic, uh, channel in Slack would be a good place to go. All right, with that stuff out of the way, uh, I have a quick trip report within my little trip report here. Uh, so I'm going to uh, do as Captain Jeff has taught so well, and I'm gonna toss it to myself over uh, in the airplane uh, just this past weekend. Hey guys, this is Nick uh, with the C-47. We're at currently at about 3,500 feet. We're heading home from Half Moon Bay. Unfortunately, if anybody made it out there, they know uh, it was a little bit of a struggle for all of us uh, with the weather, but we were able to sneak in on uh, Saturday afternoon, and uh, unlike most of the other airplanes, the Mustangs didn't get in, uh, and on Sunday, unfortunately, the, the low weather persisted, so we didn't get to drop in of our jumpers, but we did get uh, to get up a couple different times and make a couple passes, and now we're heading home in the sunny blue skies over Salinas, doing about 130 knots. So next week we're heading down to Chino for the show, and after that we're starting across the country. So uh, we'll be dropping dates in for a stop in Wichita, a stop in Maryland, and then the Connecticut trip that we've been discussing. Uh, but the, but our near-term thing is Chino, so any of the L.A. area folks who are going to be out and about there, we'd love to see you there. Uh, we get in on Friday, and we'll, the show's on Saturday and Sunday. So uh, we're looking forward to that, and we'll talk to you guys soon. All right, so it's uh, Chino next weekend, Wichita for a couple days the following week, and then Maryland. Um, and I'd love to uh, meet all the APGers that I can, but uh, I'm still trying to figure out how my days and my evenings are going to work out. So uh, please reach out to me if you're going to be in the area or if you're going to be at any of these shows. Definitely, if you're going to be at the shows, seek me out. Either come swing by the airplane and ask for me. Uh, or send me a message in Slack, or on Twitter. Uh, I'm just Nick Camacho on Twitter, uh, or Facebook. Um, but I just, I'm not sure uh, how available I'll be in the evening for meetups. I'm definitely gonna try to meet up. Um, you know, we're definitely gonna do a big one in Duxford. Uh, if Captain Jeff's around in Connecticut, I'd definitely love to do one there. And anywhere else, I'll try to, I'll try to get out as much as I can. Uh, one other quick thing I wanted to touch on just briefly is um, kind of timely because of, uh, Captain Nick's plane tale on, I think it was episode 372 about hypoxia. Uh, I just returned from, uh, Oak city actually about a week and a half ago doing, uh, the survival class put on by the civil aeromedical Institute, which is kind of the medical branch of the FAA. Uh, they're based in Oklahoma city. They put on a really good, uh, high altitude class. It's about a half a day of classroom and about a half a day of altitude chamber work. They also put on a uh, one-day survival training class, which again is about a half a day of classroom work, and then they have uh, some activities, some some smoke uh, activities, and then 
uh, a bunch of stuff in the afternoon in the pool from uh, getting into life rafts, swimming around with your life preserver on, egress trainer, egress simulators, and stuff like that. Those are both um, free services provided by the FAA. I know for the altitude chamber, you have to have an FAA medical, um, but other than that, I think it's completely free. I don't think there are any um, requirements. So I would highly, highly recommend any uh, pilots out there to uh, try to look into that and, and maybe sneak down to Oak City for a couple of days and, and take both those classes because I feel like it's just invaluable information um, to try to avoid uh, some of those really sad situations like Captain uh, Nick talked about. Uh, that's all I got for now. I'm going to try to do um, some quick trip reports, give you guys some snippets, uh, both en route and uh, when we're at these different functions. Uh, but that's all I've got for now. So uh, I'll try to chat again next week after Chino. And uh, to leave off, I thought I'd uh, toss in a little clip here of our uh, departure from Half Moon Bay on Sunday. Airbus, Douglas 47 Studio, Sierra Juliet's ready to go. Yeah, C-47, line up and wait. Line up and wait for the C-47. Okay, before takeoff. Okay, takeoff briefing is complete. Flaps are up. Engine instruments are in the green. Hydraulic pressure is within limits. Cal flaps are going to trail. Airboss, Half Moon Bay Tower, the airspace is your control. Airboss, copy, thank you. Uh, before takeoff is complete, lineup check, boost pumps are coming on. Okay. Keto heat is as required, transponders set, uh, lights are as required, and tailwheel to go. Tailwheel's locked. Okay, you have the controls. Okay. C-47 Airboss, you're clear for takeoff, 1-2, winds 2-0-0 at 6. Okay, clear for takeoff, uh, C-47. Set it right at 40. You good, 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 good. We're good. B2. Yep, gear up. Thanks for the time. We'll talk to you guys soon. Very cool. Thank you, Nick. Um, and thank you for doing this stuff for us. Um, you know, the uh, audio slash video stuff that you're thinking about doing and putting on the Slack channel. Uh, and uh, we'll look at that eagerly. One more reason for uh, people listening to the show to join the uh, APG Slack team and so that you can go over there and listen to all these things that Nick is going to put out there. I don't think it's going to be very long before Nick is going to be uh, doing his own podcast. Maybe. I don't know. No, good point. Um, I, I was very interested about the uh, FAA's hypoxia training. Free. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, How's it achieved? I, I doubt very much it is through a um, barotrauma. I would guess maybe they replace the oxygen with something else, so they decrease yeah, the percentage of oxygen. It would be an, a mask, and they'd introduce a, just change the percentage, yeah. Yeah, exactly. percentage of oxygen to induce hypoxia. Didn't the FAA have something like that at Oshkosh in previous years? I think so, years? yeah. yeah. I, I, I believe so. Mike Carroll's was oh, talking about um, doing gotta that. I've got to drink 10 beers and have a go at that. That's going to be brilliant. Mm. Brilliant! I think the 10 beers will <laughs> be, be sufficient to induce a form of hypoxia yeah. for you, and we can just get on with the tests. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think that's a great idea, Nick. And, uh, let's, let's make I'm sure gonna, we make I'm him gonna try that. do yeah. that. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> All right, great feedback. Thank you, Nick, and I look forward to hearing... Um, he just posted a link in the chat. I'm getting this information from our producer. Yeah, a link for the FAA pilot training. Oh. And, oh, they have a hyperbaric chamber. Well, I never. Really? 
Oh, so it's a real hyperbaric chamber. Wow. How about that? Thank you, Nick. I'm trying to find the chat room. Where is it? Here it is. Okay. <laughs> You've lost the chat room. FAA.gov slash pilots slash training slash something. Was this the one? Did you say <laughs> Oklahoma City or Oak? I think I it's Oklahoma City. Didn't yeah, you say? I think so. Yeah. That is, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that, that makes sense free. that they would have that at Oklahoma City. Yeah. Did you say that you had to have a medical? Uh, an you FAA have to have a medical? medical. Okay. I suppose that's, if they're actually using a chamber, then I, yeah. I guess that, that makes more another sense. good reason would be if they're going to cut down the amount of oxygen to induce hypoxia, you might well have a medical condition, and Steph will tell me all about this. That would mean that would be very dangerous. <laughs> it probably wouldn't be a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have enough problems with people coping with a cabin altitude of six or 7,000 feet. Oh, sure. Alone. Some people have trouble even at like two or 3,000 feet who are used to sea level. It can yeah. be, you know, they start feeling very unwell. Exactly, yes. I have trouble maintaining 3,000 feet. Exactly. <laughs> but that's just a personal thing. Um, so, Nick, I hope that, I know that you're going to be in Connecticut. They're going to be staging all these uh, airplanes involved in this Normandy D-Day reenactment thing and before they head off over the Atlantic. Um, and I'm, I have a layover there on the, I think it's 16th of May. And um, I know that's a media day. And uh, if we were not able to meet up there at Waterbury, or I can't remember the, exactly the name of the airport, W-O-X-C or something like that. Anyway, it's uh, a little bit south of Hartford, Connecticut, and I'll be up in Springfield, Massachusetts, but I'll be in the general area. So hopefully we'll be able to have some kind of a meetup somewhere. Waterbury, Oxford is K-O-X-C. Oxford, thank you. Oxford, Connecticut. Now, I'm just yeah. reading the chat room here, Steph. Now, Nick mm -hmm. calls it a hyperbaric chamber, and Arnie calls it a hypobaric chamber. Is a hyperbaric chamber chamber faster than a hypobaric chamber? <laughs> well, one is higher and one is lower, obviously. Yeah. Uh let me see. I'm just checking on one thing. Don't Google it. Yeah, I'm not I actually. No, I actually I clicked on the link to see what they wrote on the mm -hmm. link, just out of curiosity. Right, we believe you. Uh, I think it just actually just says. Actually, if you use Bing, you can say I did not Google it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How about dog pile? What do you do then? Dog pile. There is something mm -hmm. called. You know, you think I'm joking, but there, there, there is that. dog pile. Yeah, there there was a good search engine called dog pile. Mm -hmm. I think it's still there. Jeeves. Jeeves. Ask Jeeves, yeah. Yes. Okay, I'm going to look for Yahoo. Dogpile. Dogpile. Got a lot of those around my house. <laughs> well, as long as they're in your house. <laughs> they're in my house, too. <laughs> Remember Greta, my 18-year-old yeah. uh, yeah. dachshund? Yeah. She leaves dogpiles in the house. No, they they do say hypobaric in the in the link. Hypo. Okay. I was just making sure that it wasn't a typo in the the link. Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't know if that's uh, still in website dogpile.com. Yep, it's still there. Oh, what a cute little dog! dog got spots and it's got a little ball in its mouth. What? Dogpile.com. Go to it right now. I am. We'll wait. We'll see if you get the same image that I have on my screen. What's this show about? I've forgotten. I don't know. Puppies. <laughs> hey, it's not about making people watching or listening to the show happy and entertained. It's more about us 
being oh, happy okay. and entertained. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy. I'm drinking beer. I'm drinking the world's best IPA 2018. Uh, uh, who? Uh, what's the brewery? Uh, it's uh, Hobgoblin. Hmm. Uh, from Witchwood Brewery. It's a Hobgoblin IPA, 5.3%. Very nice. Okay. Well, I've got a par four again. All it's right. my last one of the eight that I purchased. I'll have to buy some more. I have. Well, you can't. I don't have the bottle. Oh, here's a bottle. There are usually more than par fours on the average golf course. Stone oh. IPA. Oh, I saw nice. Cody drinking out North of the bottle County. earlier. Yeah, he's so uncouth. <laughs> but I'd say go for it. Yeah, it tastes pretty much the same, actually. Oh, oh that was loud. Sorry. All right. Uh, you must have uh, pulled up the dog pile site. I did. Okay. <laughs> um, well, that is another one. Okay, close that window. <laughs> okay. Uh, what the heck are we doing here? Number four. Number four. I think um, this is time. For Steph, unless she has to go and take care of the dogs. Do you need to take care of the dogs? No, they're barking at someone who has a uh, weed whacker out outside right now. Oh, okay. um, they're kind of off in the distance. I can probably shut the no, door it's, and drop them out. No, no, it's part no, of No, no, it's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll read it. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. Just give me. <laughs> Make a note of the time, Jeff. Time for an edit. Uh, I never do that. I just You're listen just to it to and go, okay, this is all good. the dogs barking in the background. Okay. Aerotoxic syndrome. This is from CFI John. He says, Hey crew, came across this and made me think of the multi-episode discussion regarding aerotoxic syndrome. Maybe this explains why Captain Nick doesn't like Boeing. Keep up the great work and keep the blue dirty side down. Blue dirty side? Uh, sure. I don't know what that means. <laughs> anyway, he uh, includes a link to the study. Uh, that study reveals permanent brain damage among pilots and cabin crew. <laughs> Just confirming things we've known all along. Oh. Not really. And I thought it was all the alcohol. No wonder well, it's too much fun. Well. Anyway, this says, for the first time, a Belgian scientist has started an in-depth research into the effects of not only toxic fumes, but also chronic exposure to a low dose of toxins in the aircraft. Research uh, psychologist Daniel Dumalin is studying whether the toxic substances that are released during incidents with air supply, uh, fume events, have an influence on crew members. And the first results are worrying. For years now, there have been discussions in the aviation industry about the health risks that are associated with these fume events. Da, 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 during such an incident, toxic air from the engine ends up in the cabin and cockpit via the aircraft's air conditioning system. Sometimes this is accompanied by intense smoke. Is it? But in most of the cases, there is only a pungent smell in the cabin. Ew. Uh, smelly socks. There are numerous stories of pilots who, during such a fume event, become unwell behind the controls and of cabin crew who faint. Some have also some also have persistent complaints afterwards. <laughs> it's a really loud uh, leaf blower outside my window, actually. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, bursting headaches, extreme tiredness, and concentration problems. In some cases, people will start to shake or feel numbness in certain bo body parts. In the aviation industry, this is referred to as aerotoxic syndrome. Which, which ones? <laughs> certain ones. Certain you know, ones. Certain ones. That we can't say. Well, we shall leave them nameless. Oh, so that's the problem. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, not a single airline, however, recognizes the syndrome as an occupational disease. As a result, pilots or flight attendants will not be financially compensated if they have to stop flying because of their health problems. 
uh, anyway, uh, this goes on for quite a bit longer. It does. You don't but, have to write uh, the whole thing. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm not going to. Okay. But um, apparently, let's just get on to the uh, the conclusions here. Uh, according to this researcher, he says that uh, the, that damage shows remarkably uh, many similarities with brain damage that can be associated with exposure to organophosphates, which we've talked about. Organophosphates do cause um, cause injury. <clears throat> However, there's just not been any, uh, at least when I've looked through different uh, articles, any evidence showing that those certain types of organophosphates that can cause that um, that type of brain injury, brain damage, uh, can come from um, uh, fume events on aircraft. But what is a QEEG? I know I know what an EEG is, and I've had one. A Q is a quick one. Oh, okay. <laughs> I see. Not quite as accurate. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just slap a few probes on your head and do yeah. it for you like know, 10 it doesn't, seconds. It doesn't, uh, <laughs> maybe a doesn't quantitative or something like that. Yeah, maybe. it probably stands for something else. I'd, I'd hate but. for somebody to put a, I mean, I have subject myself to a EEG examination. <laughs> they go, oh, I can't let you fly anymore, Jeff. <laughs> you're, you're <laughs> There's done. no activity. <laughs> there is just nothing blank. <laughs> At first, we thought it was the probe uh, issue, but no, it's your brain. It's, it's just not it's working. It's just you. So. Yeah. I don't know. You know, we've talked about um, toxic, aerotoxic syndrome on the on the show before. Um, and again, I, I'm not sure that there's any direct correlation yet. But uh, there, as far as I know, there is not. There's some loose associations. There's some of these. Um, uh, not randomized controlled trial studies yeah. that look at, you know, uh, anecdotal evidence. Um, this guy was looking at QEEGs, and you're correct, Jeff, it is quantitative. Ooh. EEG. Yeah, so, score. Ding. There's yeah. something going on. <laughs> yeah, so I do have a little slight amount of activity you have, you still. Have a, small, a small amount of brainwave activity <laughs> still occurring. Thank you. I'll take it. And, uh, but that I was don't a doctor know that just that, said that too. So I, I feel yeah, pretty good about that. I know. Yeah. I don't know. It's not a test I perform. I'm not sure. Could Wait a minute. You, okay. Stop talking. <laughs> Sorry. And uh, as far as I know, no one um, recognizes this as a true uh, medical um, entity at yeah. this point. So there yeah, you I'm, I'm, you're right. The airlines aren't going to do this until they're forced to either mm -hmm. because it's not, they're not, so worried about the flight crew, uh, but can you imagine the number of passengers? passengers. That might, uh, yeah, I mean they, they might be opening themselves to just you know uh, a huge number of court cases from people who suspect they might have suffered it. So uh, yeah, I can, the the airlines will only do this if they're absolutely forced to. Yeah. Okay. And I only have you on, Nick, if I'm absolutely forced to. Um, <laughs> Luckily, I've got that movie still, that, that <laughs> video footage. I told you, you're not supposed to mention that. Well, I know, but I mean, if you twist my arm, I'm going to. I'm going to put it out there. <laughs> um, I think the next one would be a great one for uh, you to uh, address, Captain Nick, number five. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> I've just got something in my throat. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Oh, what a shame. Do you want to do it instead? 
No, I, think I mean, should... I can take it and you can answer it. I can no, read it. No, okay, I'm happy to do that. Felicitations, folks. Now, this is from Adam, Adam Spink, uh, the lovely air trafficker we all know. Uh, I'm glad that Captain Nick thinks we in Europe are catching up to the UA, uh, UAS, no, USA, regarding flow control. You guys, uh, you guys have good flow? Uh, I have pretty aid? good flow control. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So, uh, I don't know. Uh, it's it's a dedication for that, too. There's any catching up required. My flow control is fine. Uh, so, uh, in fact, ATC flow control. So, Adam doesn't have any flow control problems either, it appears. That's good. He's talking about his own flow control. <laughs> so, flow control across the UK began back in 19, uh, or in the 1980s. And the Central Flow Management Unit. Now, I'm just CFMU. Okay, I thought he might be inventing a rude word there. Now called the Network Management Operations Center in Brussels. Well, no wonder it doesn't work. <laughs> was established in the 1990s, which bought the concept of the whole of Europe. Okay. Similar to the wheels up times in uh, the USA, the system allocates CTOTs. Uh, CTOs. <laughs> Well, that's what we call them, CTOTs. Uh, yeah, calculated takeoff times to flights in an attempt, you know, I like that, in an attempt to ensure that the flight arrives at a particular bottleneck at the desired time. So, yes, they we've had this in uh, Europe for, for quite a while. It just doesn't work very well. However, there are many variables, and this is the kind of get-out factor that uh, Adam has built into his feedback. There are many variables that affect flight times after takeoff. So it's not their traffickers control uh, fault. Not their fault. It's, exactly right. It's, it's the pilots and the weather. <laughs> Such as winds, speed selection by the flight crew. There you go. You see, I, I knew he'd find Always blame the pilot, Adam. Yep. You are so right. Direct, yeah, exactly. so Direct routes from ATC, so uh, et cetera. Uh, so any such method is always going to be relatively blunt. And there's nothing more you can say about an air trafficker. He's a blunt instrument. Heathrow <laughs> uh, is soon to start a target time of arrivals trial. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, so that'll be a TTAT. Uh, a TTAT? A TTAT, <laughs> yes, I like that. Starting to get a little weird. T-tots and T-tets. <laughs> for flights for whom the bottleneck is Heathrow itself, uh, for whom the bottleneck is Heathrow itself, will, instead of a designated airborne wheels up time, be allocated a time at which they should aim to arrive at the holding fix. And it's up to them to fly appropriately to ensure they hit that time accurately. Well, that, that's a bit of a nightmare because uh, you... You know, you can look at your computer and you go, right, we're going to arrive there. And then someone gives you a direct, so you have to slow down. And that kind of, and then they give you, oh, you can't slow down because there's someone at your level behind you left to descend. And it all becomes a bit of a nightmare. And because when you descend, you'll be a different wind. So, uh, you know, the time will change. Uh, so I can see how that's going to work. Anyway, that and the time-based separation in final approach and the forthcoming switch to pairwise separation. Pairwise that's, separation. That's um, in contrast to Apple-wise separation. That must be mm -hmm. it, pairwise. Yes. 
as Applewise. I'm assuming Pairwise might be when they allow a landing simultaneously. He threw on both runways. Oh. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Uh, they just have to stay, like, for very close runways in the States, they stagger you in uh, nose-tail separation. You mm-hmm. like a Sam Fran, you can't overtake the other bloke. Mm-hmm. Um, Captain Nick, can rest assured we in Europe will continue to catch up? I love the way he puts that in, in air quotes. <laughs> we will catch up. Uh, <laughs> and a cute little been... winking, smiley face. Exactly. Love you too. Well, we love <laughs> you too, Adam. We uh, do so love Adam. And, yeah, I'm, really and I'm so, I, I'd like to apologize for Nick uh, kind of embarrassing. <laughs> you your, told me to. I did not. You know that's you a lie. Did? I did not. Like you're on the payroll here or something. <laughs> that's uh, a you protest too much. Liz um, and uh, staff HR, we need to talk about a pay cut. <laughs> for, yeah, we'll, we'll discuss Nick. afterwards. Okay. Or, or, you know, so TTAT would be just for the trial. Once it's just the target time of arrival, then it would just be Tata. Tata, <laughs> <laughs> Tata. <laughs> nice Tata. Tata. Yeah. Mm. Excellent. <laughs> You're not going to give me another Chinese burn, are you, again, HR? That'll be. Uh, a what? A Chinese burn. Don't you do that when you're kids and you, you twist the skin on someone's wrist opposite directions? It's called a Chinese burn. No, no I've never called it that. Never heard what of it. What do you call it then? Uh, a burn. burn. No, no, yeah. oh, I oh, know what they call that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm familiar with the concept, but I don't Something know what they call it. It's not a way that siblings inflict pain on each other in the United States, because it's very common over here. Oh, not not commonly. No. Okay. Um, so I'm very yeah. pleased to know that uh, you'll be catching up, Adam. That's Congratulations. He's about. <laughs> <laughs> this happens a lot. On the show, Cody, we we just he talks and we were like, uh, we have no idea what he's talking about. Yeah, well, uh, uh, we don't speak the same language. Do, it's only you guys over there. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Today it's three against one, Nick. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah you're, you're going to lose. And that's then right. even Adam, one of your countrymen, kind of slapped you around yeah, a little bit. About that, I know. I have to have a word with him when I see him at the meetup on the twelfth. Oh, watch out, Adam. No. I'd All just right. not attend if I were you, Adam. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I guess, you know, basically, yeah, they're very advanced in the in the UK, and they're doing a lot of things, uh, implementing a lot of things, like uh, the, uh, t- was it the time-based uh, separation criteria for approaches into Heathrow and that kind of thing, and a lot of uh, people around the world are using that as the as the benchmark. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, they, they've introduced all these target times uh, for uh, closing your doors, for calling up, uh, for uh, taking off, etc. cetera. Uh, and one of the pleasures I will have um, of, on retirement, which basically now is that I can forget all about that. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Yeah, this is just not going to be an easy one. To edit. So, <laughs> I don't have to remember what that because there's like 15 acronyms, and uh, they they all mean absolutely nothing. They're all invented by someone who has absolutely no idea how to invent an acronym because they mean nothing. So the uh, Tatas has something to do with pairwise separation, apparently. So I don't know. I'm confused now. Yeah. Thank uh, you, apples Adam. And oranges, yeah, so apples and oranges to me. <laughs> Well, you know what? We should probably put somebody on right now that uh, knows what the heck he's talking about. Oh, that'd be nice yeah. for a change. 
So this is from Colonel Jeff, and he said, Jeff, first, my hat's off to you guys on the recordings you do, whether for Patreon, Plain Tales, or whatever. I think it, I went through 10 to 15 takes to finally get this out. So frustrating. Second, this is long overdue, as it's been on my desk for several months. Hope we all learn something, Colonel Jeff. And so he sent us then this uh, audio feedback. Hello, Captain Jeff, Captain Dana, Captain Nick, the lovely Dr. Steph, and the rest of the APG community. It's Colonel Jeff. I'm going to talk a little bit about grooved runways today. We hear almost weekly about yet another jet aircraft or commercial aircraft going off, departing the prepared surface on a contaminated runway. I'm going to talk a little bit about how grooving on our runways helps us avoid that problem. So, Grooving in the United States started back in the mid to late 60s after NASA did some studies with military fighter aircraft as well as commercial aircraft. And they came up with the system of grooves you see on probably 90% of the runways here in the United States. And it's from the spacing to the depth to the width of these grooves, where they are and how they're located. So let me first start with what grooves do not do. And this kind of surprised me. The grooves do not really help with the drainage of water or contaminants off the runway. That is a very minor secondary role. They also do not increase the friction capability of the surface. That is primarily a function of the type of surface in question, whether it's asphalt or concrete or whatever. The grooves do reduce the level of standing water just by the fact that they're there and they take some of the water from the surface. Um, so how do those grooves help us if they're not taking the water away? Well, one, if, if it's frozen contamination like rain or snow and the airport personnel come out and put de-icing chemicals treatments on the runway, the grooves help retain those materials. So that's one way they help us. But their primary function is come, when it comes to water. And the grooves provide what's called forced water escape. And basically what this means, when you land or when you're taking off, as you're going down the runway, water begins to bead up in front of the tire on the leading edge of the tire as you're rolling down the runway surface. Every time that tire comes upon a groove, the water now has a place to go. And you're basically, you're doing this big hydraulic pump out the sides from in front of the tire where the water has an escape route. So it squirts out the sides below the surface of the tire. What this means is the water's no longer there. So the tire is not floating on any water, no hydroplating. You're in contact with the surface. This, incre- this translates into a greater braking effect than this and greater directional control for your aircraft. And this effectiveness increases from slight to significant as the speed of your aircraft or the water depth is decreased. So the slower you are and the less water, the more effective it is. This is why on takeoff roll, when you first start, grooving action is wonderful, but as you get up to rotation, it's not as great. When you land, you may still get some hydroplating at high speeds, but as you get slower and slower using reversers and just the fact that you have spoilers out and you have your feet on the brakes, as the aircraft does slow down, the grooves become more and more effective. This is why runways here in the United States are all grooved. 
And I can tell you from personal experience, it's nice having a ground groove runway to land on in a heavy thunderstorm. I landed in Cancun and we used 9,500 feet of a 9,600 foot long runway that was not crowned and not grooved. And that is a very helpless feeling rolling down the runway at high speed and the airplane is not slowing down because now you're along for the ride. So with that, before the crickets start to go off, because I'm not going to try to be Miami Rick, I'll say goodbye for now. So tailwinds, clear skies, and God bless. Ah, too light. Sorry. That was good stuff. Yeah, Could good you stuff. just play the important bit again in the middle? Because I missed that bit. <laughs> well, I could. Where exactly in the middle are you looking for? Like right here? Well, the bit about how the grid's it's frozen work. contamination. No, that's not it. Function is come when it comes to water. Interestingly, the things that he said he was surprised about, I was surprised about as well. Because I assumed that the grooves were something to channel the water away and and give you better friction but apparently it has more to do with the actual consistency of the surface than it does uh, with anyway but if, if i heard him correctly now the aquaplaning speed is route 9p as we all know so but doesn't that mean that at the lower speeds, when he says your braking is more efficient, you're not at the aquaplaning speed anyway, because generally speaking, the aquaplaning speed is relatively high. I believe it's nine times the square root of the tire pressure. Nine uh, root. Right? Something like that. I don't know why that... In an automobile, it's roughly around 35 miles per hour. Hmm. Hmm. I, I, don't I don't know why that, that formula is in my head, but... What did I say? I don't know. You said something. Maybe you said that. I don't know. We're not sure what you said. <laughs> well, no one listens to me, so that's hardly. <laughs> Apparently not. I didn't hear what you were saying. <laughs> exactly right. Um, but he's talking about Cancun, you know, and that's an example of one of those runways in like the Caribbean and, and Mexico, the Yucatan, that uh, they don't have grooved runways. They don't have porous friction overlays. And, you know, it's. It, it's kind of um, an in interesting ride, as he mentioned, going down that using, what, 9,500 feet of the 9,600-foot runway or whatever. We've had, at Acme, we've had airplanes go off the runways, uh, both at the end and also uh, along the sides, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the square root of the tire pressure times nine. Okay. So I think Four. I said nine root P. Or I might have said root nine. Yeah, I think it's the same thing that I was saying, nine times yeah, root, yeah. the square root of the tire pressure. Exactly. But it's actually a band anyway. That gives you one, one speed, but it's not. It's a, it's a band of speeds. So, yeah. So yeah. Interesting. Very, very interesting um, so what I, The point I was trying to make was that, uh, yeah, because, because once you get slow, you're below the aquaplaning speed anyway, in which case, you know, you're, you're much less likely to uh, have a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only are brakes more effective, um, they you're not unless likely to aquaplane, so you're not going to be in that problem. Uh, which is one of the reasons I hate this modern concept of landing with idle thrust reversers. Now I don't know if your outfit do it, but we introduced yeah. it probably a decade ago, and it's a it's a noise abatement thing really because. Uh, 
They don't like uh, the, all the local inhabitants hearing all these aircraft going down with full thrust reverse. And it's also a passenger comfort thing because they think it's uh, disturbing for the passengers. And also it's a maintenance thing. So the companies say, well, the number of uh, reverser faults you get when you use full reverser uh, are much higher than if you use idle reverser. But as a captain, uh, I always thought, once you have realized you need full reverser, it's often too late because they're only effective at higher speed. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, once you get into the lower speed range, it's not really as important, nearly as important to have full reverser in. And I, I felt very uncomfortable having to move to that SOP. Luckily, uh, we're allowed to use it as soon as the runway is wet. So they have actually recognized eventually that, uh, uh, you know, it can lead to problems. Yeah, we used to not have that restriction with um, wet or contaminated runways with uh, reverse use on the 88. Uh, but we've had some kind of, you know, prominent in the news kind of incident slash accidents. Oh, you've got wacky reverses and rudder interaction. Yeah, because oh. they can blank out the rudder effectiveness and that kind yeah. of thing. And yeah. uh, now for us, if we're flying the 88, we have to limit ourselves to idle reverse unless we need more for whatever. You know, if we find ourselves not able to stop, then we can use more. But the, the standard is idle reverse in a wet runway condition. Uh, the, the 90, on the other hand, um, uh, we can, because we don't have that, blocking or blanking of the rudder situation on that one. We can go right to the the set uh, stop for 1.3 EPR. Changing the subject a little bit, <clears throat> do you find it complicated flying multiple sectors and climbing into different versions of the same airplane on the same day on several sectors? I mean, does that happen or do you? We do. That does happen. And uh, no, I, it, there's not a heck of a lot of difference between. But they, that, that is obviously one glaring difference. That's one difference. You, but, you know, you, it's, you, it's one, you know, it's part of your brief when you're briefing up the approach. And uh, that's something that kind of bring that to your the, the forefront of your mind that, OK, we're in a 90 and these are the conditions that we're going to experience once we touch down. And this is what we're going to. This is the target EPR that we're going to, you know, so we, we talk about it every, every approach briefing. So nuances, I guess. Yeah. A little nuances. Yeah. Uh, did he, did he, or are you just making that up, Cody? <laughs> uh, he, look, just shut up. And if you, if you, if you contradict what I'm just saying, then okay, I'm, this not, is the... I'm not going to give you the 20 bucks that I told you I was going to give you. Yeah, yeah, All right. Yeah. I thought you said it was 40. 40? No, 20. It's and it's getting lower and lower as we as we go on. Maybe a dollar. What, what, think, were, the, what were the three words you're allowed to say? Uh, <laughs> it, uh, bingo, mayday, lead, you're on fire. That's the only three things your wingman's allowed to say. <laughs> anyway, good stuff. Thank you, Colonel Jeff. Or Captain Jeff, the good-looking Captain yeah, Jeff. Yeah, he, is he going to be our new Miami Rick now? Uh, yeah, I think you should send in detailed. Uh, he's got a long way to go, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no offense, Jeff. I mean that in the best way. Um, ben, you know, we've been talking about air stairs, like self-contained air stairs on airplanes for a while. Um, and Ben sent this in. He says, wow, I'm so far behind. Might need some go around a cylinder 
so I can just listen to the latest episode. Regarding stairs, Acme Blue used to have stairs in the aircraft back in the early days of the operation when the ground support wasn't as good. It was an option even on the uh, new generation 737s. Don't know if it's still in the MAX. However, after a few years in operation, Acme Blue removed all the inbuilt stairs and just had a set uh, or several put at all the ports they serve uh, and the alternates. Since the stairs on the new generation 7.3 weighed about 700 kilograms, approximately 1,600 pounds, the, uh, this rapidly paid for itself in fuel burn reduction and payload increase, even with the cost of the external stairs being purchased, shipped, and the internal stairs being removed during a maintenance visit. If I recall correctly, this work was done around the same time as the winglets were retrofitted. All future orders were without the stair option. Only new build aircraft of this size have this option that I'm aware of are the military variants. I don't know about the KC-30. What's a KC-30? It's the uh, Marine Corps. Marine Corps C-130? Okay. Uh, but the E-7 and P-8 both have the internal air stair fitted. Obviously, this flexibility is worth the weight penalty for military operations. For the same reason, most corporate 737s also have this fitted. And again, that's Ben Epolito via Facebook. Thank you, Ben, uh, for helping us. Uh, yeah, I can us. understand that entirely, Jeff, because uh, you know the cost of carrying that weight around with the, against the uh, fuel burn and uh, the cost of fuel nowadays is uh, pretty uh, damaging uh, mm -hmm. to your you know cost line. But in the military, of course, they uh, fly to places. Uh, and um, I'm sure Cody will back me up on this, where, uh, you know, they might have very, very few facilities, uh, certainly not, perhaps not on air stair to get up to a, uh, a big jet like he flies. Um, so, yeah, I guess having internal, uh, although that thing, of course, is a backdoor, uh, but having internal uh, air stairs might be essential for military airplanes. Do you have um, built-in air stairs in the C-17? We have a... Oh. I'm way off. Thank you. You got a big back door, don't you? A big ramp you yeah, can throw down. We have a ramp in the back. That's correct. Yeah, so uh, that's pretty. You not run the tank. You so you, you, as long as you get run down by the tanks that are driving up inside, you're pretty safe. I think it's the one that yeah, yeah, it won yeah, the new right. contract, and then, <laughs> and then Boeing. Oh, the KC-30 is. Oh, it's an Airbus. What? Oh, and then Boeing. Oh, yeah, that Congress uh, said, no, no, we can't have that. We want to have an American airplane that's going to be 10 years late and not work. Yeah. That's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I should move on. Well, let's then. not candy cut it. Let's tell yeah, That's true. <laughs> it's true. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> I think that ought to be a new soundbite. Well, I think I'm going to get a soundbite. Uh, okay. Um, thank you, Ben. Uh, Ray sent us in some audio feedback. He, actually, two pieces of audio feedback. Let me play the first one. Hi, Captain Jeff and all the other APG flight crew. How are you all doing? This is Ray Williams from Alpharetta. I was listening to episode 370 a couple of evenings ago while you were recording it, and I heard you mention your trip to Oshkosh and the uh, USAF Museum in Dayton. 
kind of coincidental. Uh, my son and his family flew in from Boston last Thursday, and he had organized a trip for him and me to go up to Dayton for two days at the museum. Flight times out of Atlanta to Dayton gave us less time at the museum than flying to Cincinnati and driving up. So Sparrow's fart on Friday found us trudging through the F-terminal at Hartsfield to gate F3. No aeroplane was there, but Flight Radar 24 told us that 3773D was just 10 minutes away on its flight from Vancouver. So he got a Starbucks coffee, and soon enough, the 737 was taxiing in. A few minutes later, however, the PA system announced that our flight had a gate change. What? As we moved over to F1, my son remarked, there are even fewer planes at this gate. And within a few minutes, the captain came on the PA system at the gate. I know you're wondering why there's been a gate change when the aircraft is already at the gate, he said, and went on to tell us that the incoming flight had hit severe turbulence on the approach to Atlanta and needed to be taken to the hangar to be checked. Rather than wait for that to happen, Delta was bringing another aircraft from the hangar, and as soon as it was provisioned, we'd be on our way. He also said that there was a good deal of turbulence around Atlanta, and he would be keeping the seatbelt sign on and the cabin crew strapped in for the first half of the flight. A subtle hint, I guess, to make us use the ground-based toilets before the flight. Anyways, my son and I talked about it, and we wondered, since turbulence is a rather subjective matter, how the maintenance folk had ascertained that it was severe. I know from accident reports that vertical acceleration stats are available from the FDR, is this data readily available in real time to the, the tech guys on the aircraft? Or does the lead flight attendant place an uncooked egg in a glass jar in the forward galley at the beginning of each flight and on landing check whether it's broken or not? Secondly, what kind of inspection follows when the aircraft is towed to the hangar? I guess skin wrinkles would be a dead giveaway, but are there other less obvious signs that are checked for? Would the extent of testing go so far as ultrasonic or eddy current anomalies? Just kind of wondering about that. Anyway, 3773D was given a 24-hour reprieve from flying and picked up the Cincinnati flight the following morning. Meanwhile, at gate F1, a turbulent tractor came churning up with 3739P and we were soon on our way. Must say that captain was super communicative. I'm sure the Acme pilots are all really good communicators with their passengers. Uh, found it on Delta, it can be hit and miss. Some of the pilots like to be seen as the strong and silent types. Anyway, on this flight, we knew every time what was going on and why we were waiting. Did you know that a change in aircraft of the same type required a refiling of a flight plan? I do now. Anyway, we made it to Cincinnati with about an hour's delay. The approach to 18 left was a bit gusty, but I was interested in seeing the steep rise of land of about 400 feet from the banks of the Ohio to the level mesa of the airport. This rise has claimed three crashes between 1961 and 1967 when pilots strayed below the airport's altitude on the approach. I'll talk more about the Air Force Museum in another post to keep the length of this one down 
and make it easier for you all to schedule feedback. Anyway, guys, have fun, stay safe, and thanks for the podcast. Cheers. Well, thank you, Ray, um, for sharing that experience and, uh, yeah, talking about severe turbulence and inspections required for it. And it is a somewhat subjective uh, thing for pilots to classify what they feel that they're experiencing. But the more modern airplanes, uh, I'm not sure if the, um, maybe the, the newer Airbuses have the technology. I know that uh, I think the 737, uh, the newer 737s have accelerometers built in that can give you a, uh, a, a more objective uh, indication of acceleration forces. And I think there's even a thing where, you know, if you exceed a certain acceleration force, a G force, it'll actually print out something to let you know that. You've exceeded, including like a, a, a very firm touchdown and that kind of thing that might require a maintenance inspection. Um, Nick, do you have that capability in the 330, 340? Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. If it's severe enough, it'll automatically. Well, of course, the, the customer can set up what they want the aircraft to dump down to the company. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, certain exceedances or emergencies occur then uh, depending on what the company have selected, then they will, the engineers in the company will get an automatic immediate download of all the parameters, uh, uh, and it's incredibly detailed. Uh, and uh, at the end of the flight, um, if it's, usually we don't get very much at all out of the machine, uh, the printer, but you can tell if you've been on a rough flight or done a rough landing, the bloody, <laughs> you can always tell there's been a problem because the bloody machine starts churning out page after Uh-oh. page after page <laughs> of completely indecipherable numbers. And you're looking at this and every, both pilots' eyes are getting wider and wider. The longer and longer this huge sheet of paper coming out of the printer is, the more terrified we all are that something really bad has happened. So I think that's Quick, probably an indication. tear it off and throw it away. <laughs> <laughs> is this going to require some more paperwork for exactly us? Right. You just can't make it stop. It's just no. churning out. And, and usually they, we just put it into a huge great big roll and then stick it between the thrust levers and uh you know right no something in the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that'll be fine just leave it yeah. there well, i do know that if it's if one of them is headed report 15 that's a heavy landing so that's the uh, oh no we've got a report 15 um so yeah well uh Jets are pretty uh, sophisticated in being able to do that. And the engineers, quite honestly, can do it. Although there's always uh, an essential um, visual inspection of all the um, the parts that might be twisted and bent and buckled and uh, show wrinkling and uh, all that kind of stuff that any engineer worth his sort will know how to look at an airplane and see um, whether it's been twisted or not. Um, these accelerometers uh, and um, torsion meters, etc. Put it put around the airframe. Do a very good job of uh, confirming or not whether there's been a problem. Well, if you want to see an example of what probably um, would be considered light turbulence on a uh, large jet looks like looks like in a GA aircraft, um, if you watch the next uh, PTUK, I think Armando has some video of the flight that we took the other week. Um, his poor wife in the back uh, seat, I think, only hit her head against the ceiling one time during. Oh, right. 
place. Nice. A little bumpy. <laughs> Interesting. It was it was a little bumpy. Yeah. So we, we actually in our books have formal definitions of uh, how much speed loss or gain, um, and, a, and a very literal description of. Uh, whether the aircraft is controllable, what pitch changes, what roll uh, changes might occur uh, that, you know, uh, are uncommanded um, to give you a feeling of uh, um, what, uh, how to gauge it. But I don't think many pilots really... You think uh, they just go I, by, well, that was more than yeah. just light stuff, so I'd probably call it moderate or... Well, exactly right. Pretty, I think they just take a pluck, quite honestly. Most yeah. of them do. Yeah, quite right. I Steve, think, uh, you know, I've flown with some people that, you know, characterize what we're experiencing as moderate, and I'm thinking, well, actually, based on the definitions, that's light. And and I, and when people go out there and say severe or, or extreme, I'm thinking, you don't quite understand what you're saying there. I mean, you, you are basically uh, requiring all kinds of reports and inspections and everything else. And oh, are you and sure? space avoidance, because yeah, once exactly. you start telling people there's extreme or severe turbulence, then air traffickers are almost obliged to keep, you know, keep right. that airspace empty. Or the bloke um, that says, um, see, I sound English, don't I? You um, do. That's very good. The, uh, very, like very that. natural. <laughs> yeah, very <Yeah>. natural. <laughs> you just slipped that one in there. That uh, says uh, breaking action is nil. <laughs> Thank you. You basically now said that nobody can land. Everybody's no, got to divert. And by and, the way, how did you not go off the end of the runway if yeah. the breaking action Lucky. is nil? <laughs> right. We had just a little bit, but I can see how after after us there will be nil. Yeah, yeah, we're okay. It's getting close to nil, but not quite. But I think it's nil now. Pre-nil. Yeah, 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 pretty yeah. pre nil. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, so regarding the uh, inspections required, um, I, I pulled this up from an FAA document, um, a maintenance document. Uh, special inspections should be performed after a flight through severe turbulence. Emphasis should be placed upon inspecting the upper and lower wing surfaces for excessive buckles or wrinkles with permanent set. They mean excessive buckles. You mean you're allowed a few buckles? Little buckets. <laughs> buckles are okay. <laughs> but not a, a huge, buckle. great big ones. A buckles. <laughs> you got to have some room. You have to have some margin. I mean, never mind. There, right? It's just like one giant buckle, but a <laughs> yeah. buckle is. Where wrinkles have occurred, remain uh, remove a few rivets and examine the rivet shanks. What? To determine if the rivets have sheared or were highly loaded in shear. I do that all the time on my pre-flight inspections um, through the inspection doors and wherever they are and other accessible openings inspect all spar webs from the fuselage to the tip check for buckling wrinkles and sheared attachments inspect for buckling in the area around the nacelles and the nacelle skin particularly at the wing leading edge check for fuel leaks that would be a good sign that maybe you have yeah, yeah. Good point. Uh, stressed the airplane any sizable fuel link is a fuel leak is an indication that an area may have received overloads, which have broken the sealant and opened the seams. Huh. If the landing gear don't was break the seal. yeah, don't break the seal, please. If the landing gear was lowered during a period of severe turbulence, inspecting the surrounding surfaces <laughs> carefully for loose Why rivets. Would you know? Oh, I suppose you could be on the if you're low level right? or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Anyway, we'll put all this um, 
information in yeah. the show. I, I like the bit where they say, uh, if you see excessive wrinkles, you should be worried. I mean, you've got a few wrinkles, <laughs> Jeff. Thank you. But, they... but would you say they're excessive? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do they look at the captain and they go, whoa, you're wrinkled. <laughs> you should, <laughs> you should probably be really bad. We should probably you ground you for a little bit. Oh, by the way, Ray, I love the pictures of uh, the museum. I, I know you haven't come on to that bit yet, but yeah. uh, I can't wait to. I, I know Jeff and I hope to get a uh, drop in there mm -hmm. uh, just for Oshkosh. But uh, I'm looking at that middle picture, and there I can see a potato and a flat iron. And more importantly, I can see a uh, forward swept uh, X uh, plane mm -hmm. uh, just over the top of that Valkyrie which I wrote a paper, well, not wrote, I, I gave a presentation about because of the advantages of forward sweep of military aircraft during my weapons course. Uh, and I'm, I, I was based on that airplane. I'd love to see the real one. Well, we're going to. And that, I can't wait to see that XB-70 Valkyrie. That's just such a beautiful airplane. Yeah, beautiful. it does look special, doesn't it? Yeah. All right, we'll play the uh, second piece of audio regarding the Air Force Museum after... We get back from the installment of Plane Tales for this episode, Aviation Infestation. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales, Aviation Infestation. One of my few claims to fame was to have been trained on a marvelous little fast jet, the Fallen Nat. From where I sit, it really isn't far to go to trace the origins of this petite aircraft. I merely have to head south to Hamble, near the coast, and not far from where the big National Air Traffic Service Centre that controls air traffic throughout the south of England and Wales lies. It was there that Folland constructed parts for Blenheims, Beauforts, Spitfires, Mosquitoes and Wellingtons during the war. But in the 1950s, the designer of the English Electric Lightning, Teddy Petter, joined the company and started a new project for a lightweight fighter. What came out of the work was the Folland Midge, a single-seat fighter which was soon followed by the Nat, a two-seat trainer. The RAF took on the NAS as an advanced jet trainer, and it was almost 20 years later that I climbed into one to start my fast jet training course. This was by some margin the smallest aircraft I had flown, having a wingspan of only 22 feet. The midge was even smaller, whereas the Cessna 150 that I first soloed on was 11 feet more. There was no doubt that climbing into such a small and nimble aircraft gave a markedly different impression than climbing up into a mighty phantom. With the Nat, it was much more like strapping it onto your back than getting in. The stick only moved a very small amount because there wasn't very much room in the little cockpit that one had to be careful not to over-control and keep the stick inputs very precise. Indeed, there was a complex gearing system that would amplify the range of movement at low speed. The NAT served with several air forces, including the Finnish Air Force, where it was used by Major Laura Pekuri to become the first Finn to break the sound barrier. 
The aircraft also went on to fight in the Indo-Pakistan War of 1971 and it downed several Pakistani sabres and became known as the Sabre Slayer. Despite the Canadair Sabre Mark VI being widely regarded as one of the best dogfighters of its era. So the Nat had quite a bite. The Nat was small, so I guess it was fun to use insect names for little aircraft. And this was my introduction to the class Insecta, or Hexapoda as it is sometimes known, the largest class of the phylum Anthropoda, which itself is the largest of the animal phyla. However, with regards to the naming of aircraft, class Insecta is pretty poorly represented. But perhaps I should mention that the subclass, Paleoptera, mayflies, dragonflies, etc., have quite a few, as well as the subclass, Polyneoptera, particularly the order Orthoptera, with their crickets and grasshoppers. Probably the most unlikely to be used to name an aircraft comes from the subclass, Paraneoptera, order Theoraptor, the sucking and biting lice. More of that later. The order Hymenoptera has had more than a few, since if we follow the system down through suborder Apocrita, superfamily Apodia, family Apdia, subfamily Apinae, tribe Apini, genus Apis, subgenus Apis, etc., we find the western honeybee. The first insect-named aircraft I know about stretches back to 1908, but others may well have gone before or just been nicknamed. A June bug is actually a beetle, and the common name for several scarab beetles, and includes the maybug and the cockchafer. Hey, no sniggering in the back! As well as the doodlebug, the nickname given to the Nazis V-1 flying bomb. AEA, the Aerial Experiment Association, was formed by Alexander Graham Bell and was a Canadian-American aeronautical research group formed in 1907. According to Bell, the AEA was a cooperative scientific association not for gain but for the love of the art and doing what we can do to help one another. It ran for a couple of years, and one of its members, Glenn Curtis, went on to become a major aircraft manufacturer. One of the experimental aircraft that the AEA produced was the June Bug, named by Bell after the common Philophasia beetle because June Bugs were observed to fly similarly to the aircraft, having large stiff outer wings for gliding and smaller, delicate propeller-like wings to drive it forward. The Junebug was built to attempt a prize-winning flight. The Aero Club was offering a large silver trophy, the Scientific American Cup, plus $25,000 in cash for whomsoever made the first public flight over one kilometre, 3,280 feet. The Wright brothers were given first crack at winning this prize, but apparently they were too busy working out a deal with the US government to supply them with aircraft. 
At short notice, Glenn Curtis was given the opportunity to compete and with only three days to prepare, he took to the air on Independence Day 1908. In front of a delegation of 22 Aero Club notables and a crowd of thousands, many of whom had arrived at five in the morning to get a spot on the grassy hill overlooking a field near the town of Hammondsport. The suitably lubricated cheering crowd since the nearby Pleasant Valley Wine Company had very generously opened its doors and offered free samples of all who were there, watched in anticipation. Ahead of him stretched the course, marked out by Charles Manley. Curtis powered up the June bug, got airborne and failed to reach the finishing line. Undeterred, the flying machine was dragged back and a second attempt made. This time, amid much celebration, the aircraft managed a 1.6-kilometre flight capturing the prize. It was such an amazing sight that one woman watching was so distracted that she was hit by a train on nearby tracks and suffered two broken ribs. After the flight, the wine cellars reopened their doors with free champagne for all. Sadly, the June bug no longer exists. It was later modified with floats as an experiment to see if it could operate as a seaplane. Renamed the Loon, during trials a float filled with water and it sank. Although rescued from its watery grave, it finally rotted away in a nearby boathouse. However, a flying replica can be seen at the Glen H. Curtis Museum in Hammondsport, New York. Certainly one of the most unlikely names for an aircraft must be the Mignette Pudicelle, which translates to the Louse of the Sky. The unusual name for this unusual aircraft came about following the success of Henry Ford's ubiquitous automobile, the Model T. They became so common in France that, in that wonderfully scornful way that the French can summon up so well, they called the small black machines Pou de la Rue, the Louse of the Road. The Pou de Ciel is more commonly known as the Flying Flea, and it was first flown on the 10th of September 1933. Conceived by Henry Mignette as a home-build aircraft, he published the plans and building instructions in a book which was sold all over the world. The American Practical Mechanics magazine made it even more popular by serialising the book and hundreds of people built their own fleas. The flea has an unusual configuration, but that was nothing compared with its flight control system. A very simple machine, it was a staggered biplane, almost to the point of being a tandem wing design. The top wing was over the pilot and the lower wing on top of the short fuselage right behind the cockpit. Behind that was an all-moving rudder, but no tailplane. The controls were only two axes. Moving the stick side to side deflected the rudder. It had no ailerons, and fore and aft movement pitched the little machine by increasing or decreasing the angle of the front wing. 
The action of changing the wing's angle of attack, because it was forward of the centre of gravity, would pitch the aircraft up and down. Apparently, Mignette created this control system because he felt that he wasn't a very good pilot and found it hard coordinating the stick and rudder of a conventional machine. Despite riding a wave of popularity, a design flaw began to make itself apparent, which caused the aircraft to be banned from several countries. If the front wing was moved too far, the downflow from the wing would impinge on the rear wing, greatly increasing its lift, making the aircraft pitch down. In response, the pilot would pull back further, making the situation worse, resulting in a very dangerous pitch down that caused several deadly accidents, particularly on the approach. Because the original engine had such low power, Mignette hadn't ever encountered the problem. It was only when builders started putting larger engines on them and expanding the flight envelope that the wing interference difficulties surfaced. Since the aircraft was tiny, only 14 feet long and with a span of 20 feet, the entire thing could be put inside a wind tunnel and the problem was discovered. Corrective actions were taken with the design, but the wave of bad publicity dogged Mignette for the rest of his life, despite the basic success of the aircraft. Other aircraft parasites have been built. Indeed, an entire family of parasites were developed over a period of five decades. It started in the 1910s, when the first parasitic aircraft, a BE-2 fighter, was attached to the bottom of an SS-class non-rigid airship. The aim was to elevate the fighter to a height where it could float around without using up fuel and then, when released, rapidly descend onto a raiding Zeppelin airship or such. Sadly, the single experimental flight ended in tragedy when the airship lost pressure and the fighter separated prematurely, crashing. Over the following years, more exotic parasite fighters were attached to a variety of airships. The RAF successfully attached and launched a Sopwith Camel from Her Majesty's Airship No. 23. The Germans hooked up an Albatross D3 onto a Zeppelin, but it was the US Navy who took the idea to the limits of credibility. In the 30s, the massive airships USS Akron and Macon were built with internal hangars, which could carry five tiny Curtis Sparrowhawk fighters. The fighters were fitted with hooks, and the airships equipped with a trapeze system that, when attached, could raise the aircraft inside the airship to allow it to be refueled and rearmed. Sadly, the loss of both airships in 1933 and 1935 put paid to this experiment. Attaching aircraft to gas bags wasn't the only parasitic design. In 1916, a Bristol Scout fighter was attached to the top wing of the enormous and rather inappropriately named Porter Baby, a three-engined flying boat. A very successful aircraft, several hundred Porter flying boats served with the British military and Porter himself collaborated with Glenn Curtis to sell his aircraft to the United States Navy. 
a single successful trial was conducted with Porter himself flying the baby and Flight Lieutenant Day at the controls of the Bristol Scout. The concept of parasitic aircraft continued with the USAF looking at attaching F-84 Thunder jets to the belly of their Convair B-36 bombers for self-protection and the unlikely concept of Project TomTom which attached a pair of Republic F-84 Thunderjet fighters onto the wing tips of a modified Super Fortress looks absolutely remarkable. I will say no more on this, as I see another plane tail coming. Moving away from the parasitic side of aviation, there are some much nicer insects that might have a sting, but at least they won't suck bodily fluids. Looking very angry in its stripy yellow and black paint scheme, the star bumblebee is truly insect-like. With a length of under 10 feet and a span of just 6 foot 6 inches, it's a record breaker. It was the world's smallest piloted aeroplane, at least in 1984, and it was credited as such in the Guinness Book of World Records. Not content with this tiny triplane, Robert Starr managed to remove a foot from both the length and the span for the Bumblebee 2, but his efforts nearly killed him when he crashed not long after taking the new record. There are, in fact, a number of flying bees, or to be more correct, used to be, including the Beecraft Queen Bee, Honey Bee, and Wee Bee. A perhaps better known bee is the GB Model R. This small series of tiny 1932 racers, the R1 and the R2, look pretty amazing. Built with a low-drag teardrop-shaped fuselage that sat behind a vast nine-cylinder Pratt & Whitney Wasp 800-horsepower radial engine, it was short and stubby. The cockpit was so far aft that the pilot's head more or less rested on the front of the fin. However, it was piloted with great success by Jimmy Doolittle in the Thompson Trophy race. He then set a new world landline speed record of 296 miles per hour, flying one in the Shell Speed Dash. The BG was, however, a difficult aircraft to fly, although Doolittle was quoted as saying, she's the sweetest ship I've ever flown, the tiny control surfaces meant that it could easily get away from all but the most skilled of pilots, and a number died in accidents. There are plenty of other insects that have flown, usually much better than their namesakes, including various crickets, mosquitoes, hornets and moths, etc. But I'll have to leave those to another day. But the idea of strangely named aircraft has me intrigued. Whilst most aircraft manufacturers were giving their aircraft names like Helldiver, Starfighter and Skymaster, some had different ideas. I often wondered what was in the head of the airliner maker, aviation traders, who named their aircraft the Accountant. Blackburn used many animal names such as the Swift, the Airedale, Sprat and Kangaroo, a perfect excuse for a bad landing. 
Boeing had names like the Stratocruiser, the Superfortress, and the Globemaster before they let the work experience lad get into the naming department, and before they knew it, they had the P-26P shooter. Out there somewhere is the Blanca Pacemaker Senior for the elderly pilot with heart problems. The Aussies have built a few funny ones, such as the Wirraway, Wacket, Woomera, and Windjill, but the Boomerang was the best since it always came back. One assumes that the Condor shoestring is very inexpensive, but for the APG crew, I'm going to recommend one of Ernest Tipp's aircraft, the Tipsy Nipper. Was that last one there? The Tipsy Nipper. That doesn't, we don't resemble that at all. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I thought it was good. Uh, that tale, by the way, came courtesy of Jez B, who uh, suggested uh, I did something on the Flying Flea um, uh, through our. Plain Tales channel on uh, Slack. So thanks very much indeed, Jez. Uh, appreciate uh, your input. And uh, of course, there the uh, the Flying Flea tale is great, but it wasn't quite enough for an entire story. So I had to think up some more insects uh, to talk about. But I hope you like that. Interesting the way that uh, airplanes are named. Hey, you may have noticed uh, here if you're watching the video that Cody has has changed his appearance uh cody left he's you know he, he said to me while we were starting to play the plane tale you know i thought this was going to be an interesting experience and uh, apparently uh, i was wrong and he said i gotta leave <laughs> and uh oh, not what he was expecting no he had some stuff that he had he had to do and he'll probably sure. join yeah that's jj pittsburgh over here sitting uh in the uh co-hosting spot over here in the studio in cleveland uh ed what's your uh can you hear all right with that yes. or not okay yes um lahaney lahaney right. uh also aka jj pittsburgh right. he sent us uh in uh feedback a few times and he drove all the way up from pittsburgh that's correct go. go ahead and give your microphone there all right wow jj that's a bit of a drive yeah well i actually <laughs> The previous night, I drove back from Nashville to Pittsburgh. So, so he this, he this seemed like so you you drove over to Nashville to meet up with uh, Dana. Yes, and I spent some time there. And um, my other friend was down in town randomly. I didn't realize until I had booked the trip already. So I said, okay, I'll be doing some socializing down there. Yeah. So uh, you and Dana didn't do any drinking or anything, did you? Possibly. Possibly. Okay. Possibly. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> and and I have this to. To, uh, oh, he's going to have a physical show for injury. It, but I don't know if it's... <laughs> yeah. Dana can get kind of Those rough. are the random drinking injuries that just <laughs> We got into a, happened, a brawl. You know? <laughs> Dana, Dana, Dana. You, you're not supposed to treat the community members like that. No. That's no, all right. It was all in good fun. Is. It was all good fun. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Um, anyway, so welcome Thank to uh, the Thanks for having me. studio, in air quotes. 
and uh, glad that you could make it before the end of the show. We just uh, finished listening to Plain Tales, and um, I, I have to say that I really didn't get to hear a lot of it because a lot was going on behind the scenes here. So, uh, uh, The whole time listening to it, I was just wondering if I still had my uh, college biology insect collection around somewhere collecting dust. He was naming off all the, uh, Nick, when you were naming all the different uh, orders and genus and species, I was like, oh, that sounds like vaguely familiar to me. I heard a yeah, lot of bee I, buzzing going on or something. I don't know. There, there was a bit of that. I'm going to have to apologize to both uh, people who can speak French mm-hmm. and people who know about the classification uh, system uh, of species because I undoubtedly pronounce a lot of that stuff very badly. So. Please forgive me. I think you probably nailed it all. Mea culpa, mea culpa. <laughs> um, I look forward to uh, listening while I'm editing the show. I uh, forward, look forward to listening to the entire thing. Now, oh, very damn. well done. Very well done as always. I'm very sure clever. it was. I, I enjoyed it. So. Cheers. Um, so are you guys ready to hear the second audio that Ray Williams sent in regarding the U.S. Air Force Museum? Why, yes, of course. All right, here we go. Hi, Captain Jeff and the rest of the APG flight crew. How are you all doing? This is Ray Williams from Alpharetta. And as I mentioned in a previous post, my son and I took a two-day trip up to the National Museum of the USAF at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. When planning the trip, we could maximize our museum time if we flew into Cincinnati. As I mentioned in the previous post, bad weather in Atlanta caused an hour's delay in arriving, so we made it to Dayton just before noon. Visits to the museum are free, so a quick check of our camera bags by the security folk, and we were in. The museum consists of four vast halls, and the exhibits are displayed in a chronological order amongst them, starting with the early years of aviation, World War I and then World War II. The second hall covers the Korean and Vietnam periods. Cold War gets a whole hall to itself and then through a circular tower containing ICBMs, one goes to the fourth hall that exhibits R&D aircraft, space research, global reach and the presidential aircraft. There are some 360 aircraft shown and innumerable other exhibits of engines, instruments, documents, and other artifacts. So for the enthusiast, it is not easy to keep a schedule. We had five hours at the museum on the first day and were only halfway through the Korean conflict when it was closing time. Many of the aircraft on display are unique and so to avoid accidental damage, no food or drink, including bottled water, is allowed in the halls except within the cafeterias. We were really pushing things, so lunch on the first day was a five-minute break for water and a ready-made off-the-shelf hamburger. On day two, when we had just seven hours available to visit, we had a good breakfast before we got to the museum and just settled for one water break at midday in the museum, and that proved to be a better solution. There is a flight line outside with several aircraft, uh, the prototype C-17, an A-10 Warthog, a Herc, and an EC-135E area with its bulging snoopy nose. Don't waste time looking at this during the museum open hours. It just wastes your time. It's always available, so rather go visit that flight line outside 
before or after the museum hours. It would be impossible to detail everything I saw and was awed by. It was just too many things. Uh, my personal highlights were obviously the XB-70 Valkyrie. Uh, the size and beauty of this aircraft is simply stunning. From pretty much any angle, it just has the poise and grace of one of the larger birds of prey. Talking of size, the B-36J, you remember six turning, four burning, even now in the days of A380s, is awe-inspiring for its size and definitely better looking than an A380. Another fave was the F-89J Scorpion. Uh, the first plastic model I built was a Scorpion and Scorpio is my birth sign, so I like that airplane a lot. There was a Convair 340, well, actually it's a NC-131H Samaritan that has been modified to have a second cockpit slung low under the nose in order to provide handling experience and test data for larger aircraft that were still in the development stage. Large fins on the wings enable the pilots to perform simulated crosswind landings uh, while they slung in this little cockpit in front. Also in the R&D hall was the F-84H, the fastest prop-driven aircraft built. Officially it was named the Thunderstreak, but it soon got the nickname Thunderscreech because even at taxi speed, the outer portion of its prop blades were traveling over Mark 1, resulting in some 900 sonic booms a minute. This caused problems for ground personnel, ranging from acute discomfort and nausea, right up to a seizure. And of course I was drawn to the Korean Warhol, because that was where I would find the aircraft I used to see at the air shows of my youth the F-86 Sabres that would blast down the runway about 10 foot up before climbing away in a tight turn showing off the swept back wings and leaving behind just this roar that reverberated in one's chest. The Canberra was another air show favorite back in the day. Man, it was quiet on the approach. One could hardly hear it until almost overhead. The Canberra at Wright-Patterson is represented, of course, by the Martin... EB-57B, Martin, producing the Canberra under license in the States. For those who like to look at undressed ladies, there is a real neat display of a sabre, totally complete but with all its skin removed. And this brings to light the only nitpick I have of the museum. By organizing it chronologically, technical and design innovations of the same ilk are sometimes hauls apart. In this case, a skinless standard J-1, which was ever so much simpler than the Sabre, was back in the World War I hall. The two together would have made a neat comparison. But as I say, that is truly a nit, and I can't really think of any way around it. Talking of Sabres, a brief aside not associated at all with the museum. In the Korean conflict in 1950 to 1953, Number 2 Squadron of the South African Air Force was attached to the USAF 18th Fighter Bomber Wing, flying first Mustangs and later Sabres. 2 Squadron received many awards and decorations, including two Silver Stars and a US Presidential Unit Citation. At the end of the conflict, the commanding officer of the 18th Fighter Bomber Wing issued a directive that stated, In memory of our gallant South African comrades, 
It is hereby established as a new policy that at all retreat ceremonies held by this wing, the playing of our national anthem shall be preceded by playing the introductory bars of the South African national anthem, Die Stem von Südafrika. All personnel of this wing will render the same honors to this anthem as our own. Kind of cool, huh? Anyways, back to the museum. There was so much to learn there. 24 hours before, had you asked me where the outrigger wheels on a B-47 were, I'd have said the wingtips. Nah. As I saw from the RB-47H there, they deployed from the inboard engine pods. And who would have thunk that a twin Mustang is not two Mustangs joined together, but rather an entirely new design that looks kind of the same? Similarly, I had absolutely no idea that the USAF had de Havilland mosquitoes on its strength. But sure enough, there was one in the World War II hall getting its invasion stripes painted on with a brush. Turns out the US bought 40 mozzies from Canada and designated them as F-8s, photo reconnaissance, and later got a hundred more from the Brits as uh, photo reconnaissance Mark 16s. Did I say F-8? The museum is very photographer friendly and following their recommendations we took our tripods along. This worked well as we could bracket exposures and also in areas where people were walking we could use multiple exposures to get rid of at least some of the traffic. With so many aircraft uh, it was almost impossible to get complete shots of many of the aeroplanes and a wide-angle lens is pretty much a must. I used my 24-105mm zoom most of the time and 10-18mm zoom occasionally. Having tripods meant that we didn't need to use flashes, which can be really annoying to other visitors. When touring Wright-Patterson or RAF Cosford, it is almost impossible not to be comparing the two, mentally at least. As with Cosford, the USAF Museum at Dayton is excellent. And again, as with Cosford, should be close to the top of any AvGeek's bucket list. In my personal opinion, at both museums, the major highlights are in the R&D halls. And if I had limited time to visit either, that's where I would concentrate it. It is in these halls that one sees so much of the innovation that occurs in one-off and development aircraft. And you can marvel at you know, both the ingenuity and the the free thought, I don't want to say weird, the free thought with which problems were addressed. Anyway, I hope you all enjoy your visit to Wright-Patterson and uh, talk to you later. Cheers, guys. Brilliant, Ray. I love that. That was absolutely fantastic. And A gives nice me, teaser uh, for your visit. Oh, most certainly. Oh. <laughs> I only hope that we can uh, drag... Um, Jeff out of the, the various bars there are around there to get some time to look around the museum. That'll yeah, be... well, that's your, your challenge. Yeah, exactly. But I uh, the photographs that he put up on earlier are just superb. And uh, there are some uh, exhibits there that are not only stunning, but, uh, you know, you have a much overused word, but truly unique. They're only one of a kind. Uh, and uh, from that point of view, uh, oh, bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to get there. That was me. I had something in my throat. <laughs> <laughs> Poor you. He's just um, 
staring at me. Okay. 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 I, the door is open. You can go. Oh, sorry. I'll be back. Bye. <laughs> More ambiance from the airline pilot guy show. Absolutely. Yeah. That was brilliant, Ray. Thank you very much. Indeed. I cannot and, uh, wait. Thanks, thanks for the camera um, hints. Uh, because uh, I was wondering wh whether I'd need a really wide-angle lens, but it looks like 24mm will be fine, so I'll take my 24-105 and uh, a tripod if I can fit one in. Excellent. Uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, the chance to get around there, Jeff, because uh, mm -hmm. I must admit, uh, you know, that's, that's you know, really whetted my taste. Yes. Yeah, I'm I'm so looking forward to it. Or whetted my appetite, I should say. Or whatever. Wetted something. Yeah. Yeah. Moist. I have moist. <laughs> Careful now. <laughs> Careful now. Okay. Dangerous. Uh, moving on now. Uh, number nine. But there was something in here that uh, I think was kind of aimed at Steph. I, oh, we're going to be getting to that, I think. Yeah, it's soon. this one. Yeah, there it's is Dr. Nine. Steph mentioned in the middle of it. Okay. Well. Uh, Would you like me to read it? Yeah. Why don't you do that? This is from Alex. It's about a check ride, a marathon, and a question. He says, crew, I wanted to provide an update as to my efforts to become a private pilot. After multiple check ride reschedules, thank you, spring weather in Oklahoma, I think I'll finally be able to get it done this Friday. I'm not sure when Alex sent this. Uh, Jeff can tell I can me. tell you it is on oh. the 22nd, sure 22nd of uh, April. All right, so not that long ago. Nope, but hopefully he already took the check ride and it was yeah. successful. So we'll just go ahead and say congratulations, Alex, Yay. passing your private pilot check ride. Right. We can uh, play our applause. Oh no, not another one. Yeah. Ah, ah never mind. I can't find it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he says uh, once once that's done, I'll switch yeah. gears and mentally prepare to run in a marathon on Sunday. Also, he did his check ride on Friday and a marathon on oh. Sunday. A marathon running pilot. Uh, yeah. That's crazy. Who oh. would ever think? Uh, go jump out an airplane, then you'll you know have done all three. <laughs> I hope you like IPAs, Alex. Also, um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> he says, Doctor Steph, if you are looking for a new and wonderful marathon in which to participate, I highly suggest running the Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon next year. This will be my fifth, and they've all been a blast. Uh, thank you for the invitation, Alex. That is going to occur on the 26th of April, 2020. I looked it up. Um, but sadly, I already know where I'm going to be on April 26, 2020. And it is not Oklahoma City. And it also involves running a marathon, though. Oh. Uh, that is the date of the London Marathon in 2020. Oh, you, and I fully plan on fully oh. plan on being there. One way or another. Hey, go, Dr. Steph. London, Kentucky? <laughs> so, yes. Okay. London, Ontario. Or Ontario, okay. No, oh, no. UK. So that'll be my sixth and final world marathon major. Curious to know why it's a memorial marathon. Is that after all the people who die trying to run it? <laughs> Possibility. I'm sure they have some other memorial in mind. I think it's, yeah, the, uh, we had a, there was a big there was a bombing, uh, bombing in there in Oklahoma City. Oh, was that the FBI building? Yeah. Okay, okay. But I don't know what uh, specific... No, I don't know. It doesn't say on their website, which I have here. It, sure, it probably does somewhere, but I can't find it. Anyway, he says, I do have a quick question. Uh, in one sense, what would your profession be if you weren't pilots? Dr. Steph, same thing for being a physician. I'd wish you clear skies and all the rest. However, I need those here in Oklahoma City on Friday. 
So for now, farewell. Oh, he's going to take the clearance guys then. He's not going to wish them for yeah, us. Yeah, he, he just kept them. Kind of okay. selfish. I mean, yeah. we know you have the check right and all, but... Well, those marathon selfish. runners are kind of like that. Yeah. We always want We're the selfish. best weather for ourselves. Yeah. I get it. I get it. <laughs> so how about it, guys? What would you be if you were not a pilot? Hmm. Independently well, wealthy. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a profession. <laughs> a gynecologist. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I thought you were... <laughs> Go ahead. I thought you already said that you were a gynecologist, Nick. He has. Yeah, this is you're, you're, now your hope. Kind of recurring theme in the show. <laughs> yes. the line I used to use when I was a young man. Trust me, I'm a gynecologist. Uh, but I would actually quite like to beat one. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. Steph, Fair how enough. about you? Um. So. Oh gosh. I'm so, I'm so sorry. This is what happens when I'm left to wrangle the dogs by myself. Mm-hmm. They have to be right next to somebody all the time. I apologize. No problem. Um, they're entertaining each other, which is good and bad. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, um, if I wasn't a physician, I think I probably would have stuck with what I wanted to do as a child, uh, which was to be a meteorologist. That would oh, be an interesting thing. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. For... Uh, for many, many years, I thought I was going to grow up to be a meteorologist, specifically could, like an on-screen I could see you, know, you doing meteorologist. that. Yeah, you'd be yeah, good at that. That's yeah. a fascinating idea. Yeah. And then I found out how much math was involved to get a meteorology degree. Oh, really? And I, Yeah, lots of math. And I huh. said, well, kind of like, you know, medically related stuff in biology. So maybe I'll do that instead. There's less math involved. If, um, to be truthful, uh, it was always a line when we used to talk about being gynecologists. If I couldn't have been a pilot, I would have wanted to be an air traffic controller. Oh, why? Why would you lower yourself to that? <laughs> well, so I could push all you pilots around. That's what all air traffic controllers <laughs> tell, are. Tell, tell pilots what to do. Exactly right. They all just want to go and tell pilots where to go. No, I have to issue an apology to Brandon Gonzalez, AG and RH. I was just kidding. I think that the profession of air traffic controlling and and Adam Spink, of course. There's um, several others. And all of you out there. Yeah, we know a lot of air traffic controllers. You mean the profession of air traffic control. It's a trade, surely, not a profession. (laughs) They may beg to differ there. (laughs) I would probably have been doing something in the music world industry mm-hmm. i really wanted to be like a studio uh, i play the trumpet i wanted to be a studio studio musician uh, but uh or maybe i'd probably end up being like a band director at a middle school or high school or something like that uh, which would be very fulfilling um i just wouldn't be able to afford to fly airplanes you know because i wanted to do well, that I- a bit. Uh, I one of my training captains when I joined the company was a saxophonist, uh, a session saxophonist who played uh, with some pretty big bands of the time, uh, like Manfred Mann. Mm-hmm. And uh, he got into aviation because uh, he found it was pretty boring. And uh, he started flying bands around mm-hmm. to gigs, and that's how he became oh. an airline. Interesting, because you hear a yeah. lot of people say that. Our profession is boring. Um, yeah. Who says that? Oh. Everyone that's not in it. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, today was not boring. I can tell you that. That's cool. 
There are times, though, it is a little boring, but I like boring. Boring is good. Boring boring is good. My yeah. day was boring. I like it. It's always yeah. good. Yeah. Right, right. So, boring, very good. Interesting. And I've always had a fascination and love for radio as well. I always thought that it'd be kind of cool to be involved in some way in radio, whether it oh, be. I think you'd be, you'd make a great DJ. DJ, yeah. And spinning the, spinning the, whatever you say. As a <laughs> I DJ. take it back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I need to practice stuff. I didn't okay, know you were going to throw that too, on me. Too quick to the, uh, <laughs> draw conclusions there. <laughs> anyway, great question. Thank you, Alex from central Oklahoma. Shall we continue here? How much more time do we have? Maybe about 15 minutes. I think less than that, actually. Less. <sighs> yeah, like 10 minutes. Hey, let's do, um, Amar sent us some audio feedback regarding something that we talked about on an earlier episode. Hello, APG crew. It's uh, Amar uh, calling in with some feedback here. Uh, excuse my voice. I'm going through a terrible cold now. Um, this is in response to uh, Jake from Salt Lake. Or wait, was it Jake from State Farm? Who are you talking to? Uh, it's Jake. Jake? At three in the morning? Who is this? It's Jake. What are you wearing, Jake? Uh, khakis. She sounds hideous. Well, she's a guy, so... Uh, oh, I can't remember where he's from now. No, I think it was Jake from Winnipeg. Um, he was asking in regards to medical divergence. Uh, in my previous life as an air ambulance pilot, uh, we did rescue uh, and repatriate quite a few of uh, patients that were... or passengers that were left stranded by their airline. Um... And um, typically how that would work, uh, from my experience, was if they had medical insurance or if they clicked to buy insurance on the ticket when they had purchased it, uh, that usually will cover um, the fees associated with uh, repatriating them home on an uh, air ambulance aircraft. Um, anyways, I uh, hope that helps. And uh, the Probably your rating now is uh, way below the 50% mark now that you played my feedback, but um, see you all soon. Cheers. Bye. Au contraire. You brought us up to the way above the 50% level, Amar. Thank you for that. Interesting. I didn't, I wouldn't think that the, uh, or I wouldn't have thought that the, you know, click here to buy travel insurance where it's like an extra 30 bucks for your flight or something would cover the cost of repatriation and air ambulance services. No, I, I had no idea. that's pretty good if it does. I don't know if it's 30 bucks if you have pre-existing conditions. I think it's a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. You're likely to, to need the services. Yeah. But... How about yes, 13? If you're, if you're a healthy 22-year-old, 30 bucks. Oh, no, because yeah. I've, I've purchased it once or twice for things where I... It was a significant amount of money that I would want it to recoup if I, for some reason, could not go on the flight um, or go on the trip. Um, but I, I don't recall it asking any type of questions about prior medical conditions. Oh, was I was thinking standard. more like medical insurance. Or yeah. for a, I'm assuming that would be a... No, because if know. you buy... I think what he was talking about, and I could be wrong here, so I might be dragging your, uh, your uh, accuracy yeah. rating down here, Amar. I apologize. Um, but when, usually when you purchase a flight, it will ask if you want to purchase travel insurance along with it or insurance for the, the flight in case you are unable to fly or unwell. I didn't think it covered the cost of getting you out of a country if you were stuck there because of a diversion that was for you for a medical purpose. But who knows? 
How about a volcanic uh, ash incident? I don't know. I mean, is that an act of God? <laughs> I and think so. If, if so, which God would it have been? Thor, the God of Thunder? I'm just curious. The Tiki There's Tiki not, gods. There's no God of <laughs> volcanic ash. I don't know. I'm a little rusty on my Greek gods and Roman gods. Well, could it be Zeus with his thunderbolts? I don't know. Actually. No, that's possible. So much as possible. Um, Steph. Yeah. Number 13, I think, would be perfect for you. Oh, okay. Uh, this is from Texas Charlie. It says, Skydiver's lost prosthetic leg found. Why? Steph, Steph got a prosthetic leg? Not mine. Well, she hides Not it very mine. well. So this one's for you. Usually a skydiver only has to worry about dropping her GoPro. Adios, Texas Charlie. The Sonoma County Sheriff's deputies returned a prosthetic leg to a skydiver who lost it during a jump on April 22nd, 2019. When workers found a prosthetic leg fitted with a blue Nike shoe at a Cloverdale lumberyard on Monday, they weren't sure what to make of it at first. The workers reported the unusual find to the Sonoma County Sheriff's Department. Um, the deputy gathered the intact leg, checked the area, and contacted some folks at the nearby airport. Uh, they ultimately managed to contact the prosthetic leg's owner, who they identified as Dion, in quotes. They were able to return the pricey prosthetic to him on Sunday afternoon. Turns out that an amputee went skydiving yesterday and his leg fell off in mid-flight from about 10,000 feet up. Uh, the statement said the man and his friends had gone looking for the leg but couldn't find it. Well, yeah, if you lost it at 10,000 feet, yeah, there's quite okay. a wide area uh, where it could fall, depending on the winds. Uh, a great guy full of humor who said he lost his first leg in a freak skydiving accident two years ago, but that hasn't held him back. He jokingly quipped that this was his second leg lost while skydiving. I'm not sure I want to know. So the was the first leg like the, his actual one uh, that he yeah, was born I, with? I think so. Wow. I think that's what they're saying. Yeah. So, huh. yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, obviously he likes IPA as well, Steph. So he's, <laughs> not, he's another legless skydiver. Mm-hmm. Well. IPA. That's where you By the way, did, did, yeah, you remember uh, Douglas Bader, uh, the uh, double amputee who uh, oh, yeah. flew in the Second World War? Mm-hmm. Well, when he uh, bailed out of a Spitfire over Germany, uh, he had to leave uh, one of his legs behind in the cockpit because uh, it got trapped and uh, he only got out of the aircraft by tearing the the straps that held it on free. And uh, uh, when he landed, he only had one leg. So uh, the uh, Germans asked the Brits if they wanted to send uh, Barda uh, some fresh legs. And um, they said, uh, yeah, we'll do that. And the Germans said, okay, well, we'll we'll have an amnesty so that you can fly these legs into Germany safely. And they said, no, 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 thank you very much, Dave. We'll drop them over your airfield on a normal bombing raid, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is what they did. And during a bombing raid, they, uh, they threw a pair of legs out, uh, which landed on this airfield. And um, they were found and uh, delivered to Douglas Bader, who then proceeded to try and escape on them. (laughs) (laughs) But he became such a notorious escapee that uh, they sent him to Colditz, the the high security prison, supposedly, where all the bad uh, um, prisoners were sent during the war. A great story. Wow. 
That is. All right. Um, thanks for that, uh, Texas Charlie. And uh, this will probably be the last one for today's show. Number 18, Byron. Uh, you, you know, we talked about the la- was it the last episode we were talking about the or a couple episodes ago. I think the American uh, A321 taking off from John F. Kennedy on runway three one left and um, somehow it was one of the last episodes. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it was the last one, but anyway, it was recent. And uh, they hit a runway remaining sign with the wingtip. And so here's another one, uh, according to Byron. Another plane hit something on takeoff. He said, here's another incident of someone hitting something on departure. Hopefully this one is an animal of sorts and not runway edge lights. Blue skies and tailwinds to yourself, Captain Dana. Ex-Captain Nick. Well, he's not ex-Captain yet. Uh, And Dr. Step. You know, he's always going to be Captain Nick. Once yeah. a captain, oh, always no. a captain. Yes, I don't mind me being retired. You can, you can retire. No, you're still, you're going to be Catholic, Captain Nick to <laughs> all of us forever. <laughs> anyway, um, so this article: Air New Zealand pilots turn back after the plane quote hit something. Uh, an Air New Zealand flight. Uh, the pilots believe the pilot uh, or the aircraft hit something on takeoff, April nineteenth. Uh, the ATR seventy two six hundred. Operated by Air New Zealand Link, was operating regional flight 5759 from Christchurch to Dunedin. Is that the way you pronounce that? Dunedin? Dunedin? Dunedin. I don't know. Dunedin? Help us out, Nick. Nick. Do you know some New Zealandish? Uh, uh, Yeah, I've been out there plenty of times. Uh, Dunedin. Dunedin. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Close to correct, yeah. When the pilots felt like the main landing gear had made contact with an object on departure. Uh, the plane turned back 28 minutes into the flight, ma- made a normal landing. And that's all they really said. They didn't really tell us exactly what it is that they perhaps hit. Uh, and in a related incident, a SkyWest CRJ-200 at Hattiesburg on April 26th, just a few days ago, rejected takeoff due to a deer strike. There was one at Charlotte, wasn't there, and stuff yeah, last year? Yeah, a couple of years ago, or a, or a year ago. ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not oh, surprised. Dear. There's plenty of oh, deer dear. in the area. <laughs> Good one. A SkyWest Canadair CRJ-200 on behalf of American Airlines, performing flight 3125 from Hattiesburg to Meridian, was accelerating for takeoff when the aircraft stuck at, struck a deer and rejected takeoff. The aircraft returned to the apron. So there you go. More airplanes hitting things out there that they're not supposed to hit. And well, as long as it's not each other, that's the best thing. That's true. That is so true. Well, sadly, we must come to an end here on episode 373. Had a lot of fun. Still have some things remaining in our feedback folder. We have uh, uh, some stuff, some ramp-related uh, questions and uh, information regarding the... Uh, Rob has uh, something about the origin of, of the word ramp. Dixon has some ramp rat questions as well as Connor and uh, more, more air stairs information as well. Jen, this is all for you. Um, So if you want to add to the wonderful feedback that we receive, you can send it to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. Please check out our website, airlinepilotguy.com, where you can find information about the crew, the community, and uh, merchandise you can watch the show live uh, learn about the coffee fund uh, also plain tales there's a dedicated page to that uh, with a lot of information 
that Captain Nick adds to his weekly installment of Plain Tales. Good stuff. And uh, also the APG library, uh, our librarian Tiffany uh, manages that. And there's a lot of good stuff in there if you're one of those folks that like to read good books, especially about aviation. And uh, lots of stuff there on the uh, website. We thank Amar for putting all that work into that wonderful site. And uh, we're also on the social meds. We are on the social meds or the social media, yeah. whichever you prefer. <laughs> you can head over to twitter.com uh, at APG Crew. That is our handle there. You can find our individual uh, Twitter information pinned to the top of the page. Interact with us in 280 characters or less if brevity is your thing. If it's not your thing, head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Uh, lots of good community interaction going on there. Information about aviation related news and events and uh, listener commentary and feedback or um, meetup information. And for more on that type of stuff, I'll hand it over to Hillel. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and Plain Tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at... Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1. Hotel India, 1-1, Echo 1. And see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. And again, a big round of applause. Whoa, that's loud, sorry. That's a big round. (laughs) The audience is just amazing. Very impressive. I don't know how you get them all in your room. Let's, Let's bring this down here. Let's bring this down. Our, a big thanks to our producer, Liz Piper, in Toronto. And uh, we appreciate everything you do for us and helping us to try to make this run smoothly. <laughs> and uh, until beyond ne- help. We know it. I know. It's okay. Until next time, wishing everybody clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Cheers, JJ. Cheers. Good day.